Welcome to Sacred Realms. A great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joining you on this rainy Texas evening. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Matt, you're you, you're looking pretty head head down over there. Uh, <clears throat> dare I dare I say you are involved in a creative endeavor of some kind at the moment? I, I am involved. Uh, well, you know, we're always involved in a creative endeavor when it comes to uh, the production of said pod. Uh, said pod being this pod, Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. Uh, but I am currently. Um, nine and a half pages into my primary contribution to said pod, which is the plot recap. And uh, I'm almost done, but not quite. And I'm trying to knock it out while you kind of freewheel a little bit because I've been doing this for an hour and a half and I am not surrendering to the plot <laughs> recap today. The plot recap cannot win. You can't give it an inch, Matt. No. If, if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. And then, you know, <laughs> we'll be doing this every week again. And I don't want to do that. Oh, man. Yeah. So Matt this morning comes up to me and, and says like, you know, hey, do you, are you doing the plot recap? I do the plot recap. What do we do? And I was just like, uh, I mean, you know, I did it last week. And uh, why don't you take this one? That just seems fair. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good to me. Um, this was before he had completed his section of game for the week uh and so you know fast forward to bia my cat just chilling outside you're not supposed to be out here yeah so anyway i was just saying uh fast forward to the end of the afternoon matt walks into my office just with this forlorn look on his face like you tricked me you tricked me and you know it and i was like you know what i kind of did trick you a little bit because this is a beefy beefy chunk of an episode and it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of uh, a lot of doing to unravel this ball of yarn there's gonna be a lot to talk about can't wait to get into it we at this point now that he's said hi thank you matt yes yes uh i am glad to be here i'm very glad to uh be with our guest returning of course fan favorite of course going to introduce the guest in a second for now we're going to let matt take off his headphones he's just going to get head down on this plot recap and uh and that's going to leave the guest of the evening and i uh some time to just catch up real quick and uh yeah hopefully by the time that's all done matt's plot recap his masterpiece of a his tome that he's composing over here is going to be ready to roll Uh, that does of course bring me to the guest of the week you know him you love him he is a returning favorite max nichols of bungie and hyrule inter Reviews. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing great on this fine evening on Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. One of my favorite places to be. That 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 warms our hearts. That just makes me feel really, really good. <laughs> I mean, I uh, obviously, um, you know, we we love doing this show all the time. Uh, the uh, you know the fun the fun factor of the thing has not worn off for us yet. And that's why we're continuing to do it. Um, but I, I do have to say, I have a, I have a special place in my heart for Max Nichols episode nights because, uh, I I feel like it's always just such a, such a good time. You know, I, I feel like we're always able to really, um, 
to really dig in deep into the sections of game that we're playing and to uh, come up with some interesting conclusions, add some interesting perspectives. So um, definitely very happy that we're having you on for this one for a few different reasons. I think when we were doling out episodes and scheduling all of our guests for the season, I, um, you know, uh, I, I sent you that uh, that message and was like, when do you want to be on? And in the back of my mind, I kind of had an inkling that it was going to be this one. Uh, and I was right. And after having played through it and, you know, put the controller back in the dock for the night, I kind of sat back for a second and thought to myself, yeah, that's a that's a Max Nichols episode right there. So <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's that's as much of like a, you know, a, a get hype moment as I can drop at the beginning of this thing. I think it's going to be a really good time before we get into that. How you doing, Max? I am doing well. Uh, yeah, trying to think what's going on in my life, and I'm drawing a total blank. So you know, it's good. Christmas, <laughs> I guess, is happening. We have a nice big tree up. That was fun. And yeah, we we uh, I've got a vacation coming up soon. Taking a couple of weeks off. We are barreling towards the end of the year right that. now. I mean, it's it's coming. It's coming quick. Oh, I've been uh, speaking of end of the year. I've been running a. Uh, game awards like very informal game award voting in the sacred realms discord uh see if the discord community can pick our favorite games of a variety of categories there's actually some really interesting stuff in there already and this is a good time to mention i'll do so again in the housekeeping but uh if you're not in our discord channel um and you would like to be you would like to be involved with a discussion amongst all of our uh, all of our listeners and you know fans of Zelda and gaming in general great crew in there all you got to do is join the Patreon at any tier and you get access to the Discord channel if you're a patron and you listen to the show weekly and you have not gotten into the Discord channel yet get on that it is a great time uh, but i was looking through some of that um, some of that discussion this morning and yeah there's some there's some real uh, there's some real interesting picks in there for sure i i gather that it's been a really excellent year on the whole for uh for gaming i know that some years um i, I think it's unfair to call any year an off year because great stuff comes out every year but I, I feel like some years definitely have um a really well distributed smattering of like heavy hitter triple a titles with some some really standout indies mixed in and yeah um I, I think this is one of those years it's a pretty good year it's no 2017 or 1998 but but it's a good year 2017 was Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey, Celeste? Uh, Persona 5, Near Automata, um, Pyre by Supergiant Games. Oh, yeah. Probably, probably uh, some other stuff I'm forgetting. That was actually one of my favorite announcements of the whole actual Game Awards was oh. the Hades 2 announcement from Supergiant. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. That was also 2017. It was a game where there were like five games that would have been my game of the year any other year if they weren't going up against Breath of the Wild. Um, just a phenomenal year. <laughs> yeah, Breath of the Wild. It's a real and, real silver silver bullet of a game right there. And 1998, of course, was Ocarina of Time and Half-Life and StarCraft and Metal Gear Solid and Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. A whole host of others. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, Golden Eye sixty four. I know that's not. I mean, you know, it's not. It's probably not up to the caliber of all those other games you just mentioned. But um, big part of my childhood. I mean, for it sure. was a big deal at the time. It was definitely was. Well, very cool. I'm glad to hear that things are going well for you, and uh, glad to hear that you're taking off some much deserved time as we get close to the holidays. Uh, we don't. We don't want you getting burnt out, Max. We don't want you uh, grinding yourself into dust. 
you gotta oh. gotta keep gotta keep your uh, gotta keep your mind healthy. You gotta take some time and have some uh, have some time for you. That's important. Yeah, stretch those neurons. Yep, that's what it's about. So, real quick before we get into housekeeping, I know obviously we've had a lot of conversations with you before about your history with the Zelda series, but I want to go back real quick and let's just catch up on Wind Waker specifically. Um, you know, when you played the game for the first time, how much experience you have with it, and kind of, I guess, just generally where you would rank it amongst the other Zelda games that you um, that you love. Ah. Uh. Wind Waker hits that sweet spot for me where I was like old enough and a big enough of a fan that I was like involved in the in the fandom. Like I was posting on Zelda forums and stuff back in 2002 when this came out. Um, but I was still young enough that like now looking back, like it's a childhood memory. Um, it's the only game that really occupies quite that sweet spot for me. Um, I mean, of course, the story goes back to 2000 when the Space World 2000 demo showed a super realistic Zelda, <laughs> right? So I, it, back then, this is where realism is where, was. In, it, yeah, in my mind, there's air quotes around your use of super realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we might call it hyper real now. Um, but uh, or was that, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So back then, like we were coming off of you know, the NES to the SNES and then the SNES, to the N64 and then the N64, the GameCube, every console generation up until that point amongst Nintendo consoles, at least had been this like seismic shift, right? When we went to the SNES, they, they could make entirely new games with the power available to them. And it was just like night and day compared to the NES. And then the N64 came out and it was mind blowing to have our first 3d games, so everyone had this idea that every console generation is going to be like a game changing jump in power. And that power was what was important. Like people thought of like realism was an indicator of power and power was what was important. And so they showed us this realistic Zelda and everyone lost their minds. It looked amazing to, to our eyes back then. Um, you know, and then they reinforced it with stuff like the Oracle's super realistic, you know, CGI a commercial and uh, which released, I think right before the wind waker, if my memory serves. Um, and then of course they revealed the cartoon style. And I remember being like, at that time we didn't have high speed internet. Most of us yet. Right. Like I was on a six, uh, 56k modem on like the Nintendo Joe.com forums, talking to my friends, looking at this grainy screenshot. That was the first image we ever saw of it. And we were like, is it real? Like we didn't believe it. Like it was so alien to us. We didn't even believe it was a real screenshot of the Zelda that was just being revealed. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until hours later when we all managed to download the trailer and see the footage that we all had to come to terms with like, this is real. This is what they're making. Oh no. Um, was your first, that was the general sense. Was your first impression favorable or, or were you kind of, um, you know, no secret that it was that, that it was controversial, right? We've talked about that on the yeah. show before. Um, where did you really land on it? My my first impression was not at all favorable. I like I hated it. I had a visceral reaction to and hated it at the time. And I, I don't know. I was like twelve or thirteen or maybe fourteen, something like that. Um, and I think within within a few days, I had come around. Like, I think I, I did stuff like look at the, the images of the forest from that reveal trailer and like realize like, huh, those bushes look just like the link to the past concept art. And I like started comparing it to like 
anime influenced art that I was, that I loved. And I like realizing like, wow, this looks more like the old school Zeldas that I love than no of time style did. And I kind of came around fast because of that nowadays, nowadays, I think it's maybe the most beautiful game ever made. Um, so obviously I came all the way around there. It's so funny to me because I, I'm just I, I was not super active on the internet at the time that this came out. I was let's see, this came out in two thousand two, correct? Yes. Okay. So I was twelve. I, I was definitely on the internet. I, I used it mostly to look up game guides and stuff, but I wasn't on forums or anything. Um, so I can only imagine. But I, I don't know. Was this like was this a time online when? I guess you know pre-social media, where it was a little bit, uh, a little bit more possible for um, I guess rational thought to like enter the proceedings and for like cool and you know measured analysis to to kind of happen over time, and, and it's not like immediately a <laughs> show, you know, where everyone's just you know losing their minds and you're just drowning in a cesspool of online negativity. Uh. No, it's pretty much the same. Uh, <laughs> it's always been this way. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> Cesspool of negativity was already there. Okay. Uh, so, pe- so, so you're saying people are the problem? Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I have to correct myself. It came out in Japan in 2002 in December, and in North America it was March 2003. So, I've been getting my dates slightly wrong. Gotcha. There. In, in fairness, we had a discussion about the first trailer that was released for this game on the Discord channel the other day. And um, watching it, obviously the art style is a slightly less refined version of what we finally got in the game. It's it's pretty accurate, I think. Um, but but I think really the the bigger swing in tone that isn't um, that isn't exactly followed through on in the final game is like there's a much more slapstick. Um, sort of vibe to the to the trailer it's much more uh kind of i think someone said it, it felt kind of looney tunes in certain ways um i was gonna say the climax of the trailer is a bunch of moblins running off a cliff and then standing there for a second before they realize they've fallen off and then they fall off like kite coyote time uh sort of stuff yeah it's a it's a straight up wily e. coyote and roadrunner situation and i i can definitely see that being a little off-putting maybe even more so than the than the art style um would have been because that's a very that's a very specific tone that the trailer was trying to evoke and uh obviously the final game does have um it does have its share of that type of humor you know it's it it, it is kind of a goofy game in a lot of ways but it's not that goofy yeah yeah the the final game is significantly more it's funny to say this about the Wind Waker, but significantly more serious in tone than that original trailer was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if, if any of you listeners have not seen that original trailer, it is worth taking a minute to Google it and just just like search for Wind Waker original trailer or something. It'd be from 2001. Um, and it is it is quite something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Best way to describe it. So you said you came all the way back around and you now think that it's artistically one of the most beautiful games ever made. Um I, I guess what what is your opinion of the game as a whole, right? Because the aesthetic is obviously one huge part of this game's identity. Um, but I think the other half of it is the like there's this this deceptive thing that's sort of happening where 
the aesthetic is so wildly different that it kind of it like it takes you off guard and momentarily distracts you from the reality that this is actually at its bones just an incredible refinement of the Ocarina of Time formula of Zelda games. Yeah. Um I have an extremely high opinion of it. Uh I it's probably my second favorite 3D Zelda game after Breath of the Wild. Um recently kind of dethroned even Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask in my esteem. Yeah, and it move it moves around on my list as well. So, um, you know, Matt and I have said before, I think our, the the big moment for me personally is going to come at the end of all of this when I have to decide I guess where where Wind Waker, Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time all like how those three games all align under Breath of the Wild. Like that's going to be a that's going to be a, a, a question that requires some soul searching on my part. So uh, that's that's OK, though. That's fun. That's that's why we do this. It's fun discussion to to have. Um, and I mean, so. I'm, I'm I'm assuming that you've played this game many times. I have, although not for a decade. This is the first time I've played it since Wind Waker HD came out. And you so have said and you've said before that even though you love the aesthetic of the game, generally speaking, the HD treatment um, and some of the changes that they made to uh, graphics, color grading, all that stuff um, is is not your favorite versus what it looked like on the GameCube. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I personally think the art style of the HD remake is a downgrade uh, because there's a lot more bloom there's a lot more uh gradient shading like instead of just the the raw shell or cell shading that the original had um in general to me it looks more plastic versus the original looking more like a cartoon Uh uh-huh uh so so yeah that's kind of my opinion there but in the end um i tried to play the original instead of the hd remake and it was i had trouble with like getting my gamecube to work on my modern tv and i had trouble with the fact that the original's uh, camera is inverted and you can't change it. That just sounds terrible. Uh, which drove me crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a ton of quality of life changes. So, like, overall, despite my opinion there, which is probably just nostalgia field anyways, um, I, I recommend the HD version. Yeah. Well, and it's a moot point anyway because the, the odds of Nintendo ever releasing an HD version of the original – you know form of the game is basically zero um so yeah no that ain't happening it's kind of a it's kind of a star wars original versions situation like once the once the remasters came out uh yeah you were never going to be able to commercially purchase a version of the of the original cut ever again so Yep. Yep. But that's okay because it's still an excellent product. So that's all great stuff. Thanks for catching us up on your experience with the game. Uh, I I believe you've been following us week to week. Is that correct? Uh, I've been trying to. I've only listened to the first half of the the last episode so far. Cool. So I'm not... 100% 100% up today. Yeah. Well, but, that's the shortest one in our repertoire. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that one's... Yeah, I have no excuse. only like an hour. Um, but I, I meant more in terms of, like, you you are playing the game week to week with us. Like, you're keeping up with the... Oh. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I have been. I've been playing more or less on the same schedule as the podcast. Cool. Do you have... Uh, and real quick, this is the last thing before housekeeping, because I think Matt's done. I am done. Matt has big. He just finished the plot recap looks over I, there. I did. I finished that's it. Nice. <laughs> 
I could I could sense it. The the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I was like, ooh, he's finished. He's proud of it. I am very proud of it. Um, okay. So, but yeah, real quick, um, is there anything that you want to say, any quick thoughts about the beginning of the game prior to the point that we're going to play today that, that you kind of want to get in before we move on? Hmm. Um, I, I think it has my favorite opening of the series. Like in terms of the uh, cinematic or just the opening area at the first act of the story? I'm yeah, I mean the first act of the story, like the essentially the first half hour of the game or whatever. Um, just the amount of wonderful characters you can introduce to and like emotional moments that happen and it's kind of hits a good balance of tutorialization, but also giving you freedom to explore and use what you're learning. Um that like later games like Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, I feel lost. Um yeah, I th- I think it's just got a really strong opening arc. Yeah, I agree. I think whereas Ocarina of Time's opening arc can feel a little a little short in hindsight and Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, those definitely I mean, you get lost in the in the first act of those games for several hours. Like Twilight Princess specifically, the first act of that game just really drags. I, that's one of the most recurring criticisms against it. Um and it's always fun, like existing in a Zelda world, you know, I mean, it's it's still a good time, but there is something to be said for for brevity and efficiency of time. And I think Wind Waker strikes that balance just really, really well. I, I agree with you completely, Max. Well, cool. All right. With all that being said, um, I don't think we need to take up any more time talking about what has been played before, because we have plenty to talk about in what we came here to talk about this week, this uh, fourth chapter of the game, a pivotal chapter so without any further preamble let's get the housekeeping out of the way and then dive right into it without any further preamble let's get into the scripted preamble without (laughs) well this is format matt this is this is ritual here okay okay Okay. it's necessary Uh okay okay if it makes you feel better i don't appreciate your attitude (laughs) you just made me type 10 pages of plot recap i'm gonna give you a lot of nobody is chaining you to your laptop you can exit this production at any time you wish but please don't yeah i was about to say yeah i don't want that i don't want that that makes me i would never do it anyway all right well assuming that matt is sticking around for the remainder of the show yes Good. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. Of course, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get on our show is that their names are read every week live. Those legendary individuals are Soge King Vinesmoke, Kelso, Chris, Tiffany. The list is loading. There it is. Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknook, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Meister, Edder. Oh, no. I forgot to filter the... Yeah, I was about to say that you have, you're reading the wrong list. Man. Okay. All right. Edit. Meister, Edder of the Kokiri Sword tier. You snuck into this one. Good on you. It's very stealthy of you. 
or just incompetent of you. Or just user error on my part. (laughs) (laughs) We still love you. You're great. All right. Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Keep It Going Pod, Dante, Gep, Mary, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Brittany, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Our guest of the evening, Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are legendary individuals. We could not make this podcast without their generous support. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that, of course, every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Part one is always the plot recap. This week, once again, read by Matt. Matt, drop it on us. As we exit the Forest Haven, the King of Red Lions is shocked and horrified that the Deku Tree itself has been attacked, and that it signals Ganon's return to power is much further along than he originally feared. It is imperative that we quickly find the next Goddess Pearl before it can be stolen by the evil king. So we set off across the Great Sea in search of the third Pearl, towards an island in the southwest. Along the way, we find more fishmen who help us begin to fill in our sea chart and give some moderately useful tips as well. We even find some more pieces of heart and rupees to pad our life force and our wallet. Once we reach Great Fish Isle, we find it covered by storms and inexplicably torn completely apart. The island is rent into shreds, the sea flows through giant gashes where solid land once stood, and the ocean spirit Jaboon is nowhere to be seen. The island is steeped in storms, even though the sea around it is peaceful and calm. And as we land on the ruined shores, we hear a voice call out our name and see the Rito, Quill, flying towards us with haste. Once he lands, he quickly confirms that we are indeed looking for Jaboon and imparts a message from Balu. Jaboon was able to escape the destruction of his home island and currently is residing in a cavern on the backside of our home island of Outset. There, a great stone slab protects the entrance so that no minion of evil can attack the water spirit. Unfortunately, we are not the only person this message has reached. The pirates who we initially set out with to the Forsaken Fortress tricked Quill into revealing this message to them by pretending that we were still with them. While Quill is glad to have relayed the message to us, he is eager to depart this cursed place and return home. Before flying off, he tells us that the pirates were last spotted heading towards Windfall Island, and that we should hurry there if we want to see what they are up to. We decide it is best to follow suit and leave this place, so we hop on board the king and sail towards Windfall Island. As we do, the entire sea is overcome with a constant storm. In addition to the foul weather, we start seeing more and more monsters that rise up from the waves to to harass us as we make our way across the water. Sharks, giant octoroks, and huge pea hats harry us as we sail north to Windfall. Once we arrive, we see the great pirate ship moored off the side of Windfall, but there is no one out and about on the island. We make our way around town and see very little of the inhabitants, who have all taken shelter indoors from the storm, and nothing of the pirates. Finally, we get a tip that they were seen talking to the owner of the bomb shop outside of town, so we head there to see if we can learn anything. And as we knock, the shopkeeper shouts in a rather odd way that they are closed for the day and that we'd better scram. Not liking the sound of any of that, we sneak around the side of the shop and find a crawl space to get inside. 
There we see the pirates tying up the bomb shop owner and stealing all of his explosive payload. The pirates are admonishing him about his monopoly on the bomb market and his capitalistic villainy, and also bragging about how they learned of the existence of the treasure hidden in Outset Island. Rather abashedly, one of the pirates calls out to Tetra for a ridiculous compliment, which she promptly returns by calling the lot of her crew fools. She admonishes the crew that they have to hurry, or else what happened to Great Fish Isle might happen to the peaceful island of Outset. And, almost as an afterthought, of course, the treasure there as well. The crew is shocked to hear about her concern for the island, but they are not in a hurry and request shore leave instead of immediate departure. Before she answers, Tetra tilts her head towards our hiding spot, but we squeeze back, hoping she doesn't spot us. She begrudgingly agrees to shore leave and tells them all to get lost. Before we leave, we hear the pirates reminding one of their slow-witted compatriots what the password to the ship is, and we log that for future use. After all, is stealing stolen goods as bad as stealing the goods in the first place? Choosing to ignore the moral dilemma for the present, we head to the ship to take some bombs for ourselves so that we can beat the pirates to the goddess pearl. There we see our old friend Nico, who lets us in once we give the password, and is very glad to see us again. He puts us, his favorite swabby, and another challenge, swinging across the hold of the ship on ropes. This challenge is significantly more annoying than the first one, but we eventually win free into the other side. Nico bestows on us a bomb bag, but just as we're leaving the hold, the magic stone rings out with Tetra's voice. She says that we have some serious guts stealing from pirates and that she is shocked we've survived the encounter with the monster bird. She says that we can leave with the bombs for now, but come sunrise, the pirates will be on their way to Outset Island and will take that treasure for themselves. With the deadline now to beat, we book it back to the king and head south at once. As we sail across the sea, the night continues on and on and on, as does the unnatural storm that plagues the skies. After a long journey, dodging cyclones and monsters, we arrive home once again. The island is visually the same, but the feeling of home is far from this place. Two monsters spring from the ground to attack us as soon as we land, and not a soul can be seen anywhere on the island. We immediately head home to check on Grandma, but find her fast asleep and muttering about not wanting us to leave her alone. Feeling remorseful and also extremely guilty, we leave the house quietly so as not to wake her. We visit Orca and show off some sword skills and make our way up to the fairy woods, where we find a fresh, small horde of monsters to kill. With our new bombs, we blow up the ancient boulder and find a hole to explore. Within is a great fairy who grants us a larger wallet that can hold up to a thousand rupees. While all of this is great, it's not the reason we're here, so we head back to the king and sail around to the backside of the island, where we spot the giant stone slab that we seek. As we see the slab, we are caught in a whirlpool that seeks to drag us under the raging sea. With our new cannon and our bombs, we blow open the stone slab, and once we do, the whirlpool dissipates. We head inside, and a truly gigantic anglerfish comes out from beneath the surface of the still water. This is Jaboon, as we know because the king addresses him as such. Jaboon begins speaking to the king in the same odd ancient tongue that Valu and the Deku tree used. However, the king appears to understand it, and we get at least his half of the conversation. After a brief discussion and some oblique references to us that we don't understand, Jaboon gifts us with Nehru's pearl. The King of Red Lions leaves the cavern, and we immediately set off to place the pearls in their appointed places that the king has marked on our map. 
As we set sail across the sea, the unnatural storm is broken by the collecting of the pearl, but the monsters are still plentiful and swarming. We have to use the cannon to clear the path around each of the small isles that we come to, and on these islands are ancient stone statues with the symbols of the three goddesses carved upon them. Each one glows his signature color and requests the orb once we approach it. There is one close to Outset Island in the south, one between Dragon Roost Island and Forest Haven in the east, and one close to Windfall Island in the north. At each location, we place the corresponding pearl, and at the last location, the statue begins to emit a glow of insane brilliance. Fearing the statue will explode, we take cover, only for the statue to dim once more. We approach cautiously, and as if waiting for us to get close enough, it does indeed explode in a blaze of light. And as we are flung comically high into the air, we see that the statue is no longer ancient stone, but a radiant gemstone-like material, crowned with power and grace. We see beams of light erupt from each of the three statue and connect one to the next. In the middle of this triangle of colored light, the golden triangle sigil appears, and in the center of this rises a gigantic tower, straight up out of the ocean. For some reason, we smack right into the wall of this tower and fall back into the sea. The king comes and scoops us up and tells us that this is the Tower of the Gods. This is a trial set up by the old gods to test the one who would try to be their champion against evil. Everything we have faced up until now was just minor league preparation, but if we want to get the power that is required to defeat Ganon and save Errol and all of the land upon the Great Sea, we must prove to the gods that we are worthy of that power. So we head into the tower and begin the trial. The tower is absolutely massive, and the water level within the entryway constantly changes up and down and up and down. We maneuver around with the king until we find a door that is blocked with bars. There's a glowing switch that releases the bars, but as soon as we move off of it, the bars return. We take one of the statues nearby and place it on the switch to continue on our way. And as we move throughout this magical dungeon, this little trick comes in constant use. And the gods did not only leave us locked doors to contend with. New enemies and mind-bending puzzles slow our progress throughout the dungeon as we try to climb our way to the top of the tower. We eventually come to a chamber with four doors, including the one we came through. The door on our left is open, so we head there first. Here we find a bridge of light that lets us hop over a brief maze, and on a dais on the far side of the room is another statue of different design and material than the others we've seen so far. The, plaques, the plaque next to it tells us to call out to awaken it and lead it to its place of truth. Once we call out, it glows a vibrant blue and starts shadowing our every move. So we carefully guide it around the maze and hop over the bottomless pit with it to get it into the central chamber. As soon as we do, it goes of its own accord to the circular stone design in front of us, which raises to form another dais that the statue now rests upon. A rainbow circlet of light blazes in the central platform, and a stone tablet rises up that bears symbols much like those that taught us the wind's requiem. We go up to it and pull out the wind waker and conduct in the pattern that the stone tablet tells us. From this, we learn the command melody, which can be used to take control of special constructs like the statue that we just guided out of the previous room. The door across the chamber opens after this, and the first statue tells us to bring his brethren here to open the way forward. So we head off to do just that. The next room has a chasm in the middle, which can only be traversed using the grapple, which immediately spells trouble for our statuesque friends. 
We start making our way around and get the next statue in the room on the far side of this chasm. Using the command melody, we remote pilot our friend across a handy-dandy light bridge that we created by standing on one of those switches. Once in the room with the chasm, we place our friend on the switch nearby, but instead of spawning another light bridge as we had hoped, a third door opens up on the right side of the room. So we head that way to see what we can find to help us out. Inside, we come face to face with a towering behemoth in thick white armor that is wielding a sword twice as long as we are tall. This menacing figure engages us in battle immediately and starts doing everything it can to everything it can to cleave us in two with its wicked blade. Using our skills and superior maneuverability, we manage to get behind it and slash off its thick armor, allowing us to land hits on the monster. It is much safer to attack from behind, so we begin a pattern of dodging and rolling around to do just that. And eventually the warrior falls and drops a knight's crest for us to collect. In the middle of the battle circle, a chest spawns, and to our utter delight, it contains a bow and arrow. Heading back into the room with the chasm, we see a mural on the far wall in the shape of a giant eye, and we decide to go ahead and test our new bow on it. And to our delight, some floating platforms begin to move across the chasm, which spells success for our venture of reuniting the statues. We take our friend into the central room where he joins his brother on his respective pillar, and the final room opens up. So we head in to find a room with two scales and a small river of water blocking our way to the door beyond. There are some other rooms off to either side here, one containing a treasure chart guarded by some larger hostile statues that require some combo work with the bow and bombs, and another room with a lot of moving platforms and eye switches to shoot that contains a small key and a joy pendant. Back in the room with the scales, we use some inert small statues to weigh down one side of the scale so we can safely cross the other and retrieve our friend. This statue is guarded by impenetrable lasers that we can only get past by gliding with the Deku leaf from a raised block on the other side of the room. From there, our friend passes harmlessly through the deadly lasers and kindly deactivates them for us. We take him across the scales and into the central chamber, where he joins his brothers, not unlike when the three Willoughby brothers finally get together. Not unlike. Not unlike. That has happened once or twice. (laughs) Once or twice. Maybe twice. (laughs) Recently, maybe. (laughs) The central platform now forms a large glowy circle that promises to take us higher in the tower, so we hop in and ride up. As soon as we exit the anti-gravity lift, we see a chest that undoubtedly contains the key to the boss chamber, and we use some more small statues to open up the way. We then exit the room and climb the rest of the way to the top, being sure to use our bow to kill the hell out of all the Beemos that guard the staircase along the way. Once we reach the room at the top of the tower, a mechanical-sounding voice talks to us to congratulate us on making it this far. If we are to prove ourselves worthy, though, we must face this final trial in the tower and best the champion. From the very wall comes two floating hands, a gigantic stone head with glowing red eyes. Each hand has a glowing green eye in its palm, and all three edifices move around independently and incredibly quickly. We instinctively start using our bow to shoot at the eyes that we can see, and after damaging each hand a few times, they hang limp in the air. But the danger only increases from here, as the head now starts charging us. Each of its red eye takes two arrows to stun, but before we can stun both, it closes its eyes and unleashes a barrage of energy balls that explode all around us. Once we can stun its eyes, it falls to the ground, mouth agape, and we take the opportunity to chuck a bomb down its gullet. 
While this doesn't kill it outright, it obviously damages the edifice, so we suit up to go for a second round. After blowing it to hell three times, the final champion is defeated, and the voice acknowledges that we are worthy to proceed. grab the heart container before hopping into another magic portal that takes us to the roof of the tower. Here we see a giant bell that we ring using our body weight and the grapple. After ringing the bell, a magical bright light coalesces on the surface of the ocean beneath us, and we immediately head to reunite with the king and investigate. The king of red lions tells us that the challenge ahead will solidify us on the path to confronting Ganon, and there will be no way back. The challenge is great, but the power needed to defeat Ganon can be gained in no other way. We agree, and the king enters the Ring of Light. Alarmingly, we don't go up into the air as expected, but instead begin to sink below the waves. As we hold our breath, the descent is slow. Far too slow for us to hold our breath the whole way down. Eventually, our willpower gives out, but instead of drowning, we actually find the shaft of light full of breathable air. We stare in amazement at the confines of the magical beam of light that encase us from the crushing depth of the ocean surrounding us. The seascape looks alien, and as we keep descending, the mountains begin rising above us, until at last we can see the destination that we are bound for. A huge castle, resplendent with heraldry and majesty, sits seemingly frozen in a pale light. The beam is taking us directly into a scenic courtyard, and once we land, the King of Red Lion gives us a hasty speech about not having time to explain what he doesn't have time to explain, but that we have to go into the castle to retrieve the needed power from within. (laughs) No time to explain. I thought you would like that. As we go in, we see a horde of moblins and dark nuts that, just like the pendants on the outside of the castle, are totally frozen in place. The castle seems to be in a state of mid-ransack, but the portraits and statues stand mostly unmolested in majesty. We head to the bottom of the grand staircase and admire the statue of the hero holding his sword aloft. And there the King of Red Lions tells us that the power we need is in the basement, which can only be reached by solving a puzzle designed to keep the monsters at bay. We see the sigil of the golden triangles that were scattered throughout the Tower of the Gods, and we move around some pieces on the floor to create the triangle on the paving stones. Once we do, the gigantic statue depicting the hero of old moves aside to reveal a descending staircase. We follow it and enter the basement. Here we find a glorious and ornate chamber with stained glass windows depicting ancient gods or sages or priests of some kind, the golden triangles that we have seen so frequently lately, and in the middle, a monster of terrifying visage. In the center of this chamber is a pedestal flanked by towering statues of knights, and in the pedestal is a sword resplendent in a beam of white light. The King of Red Lions tells us that this is the Blade of Evil's Bane, the Master Sword, and it is the only thing that can defeat Ganon. We grasp the sword and pull it from its pedestal, and as we do, the statues lower their blades in a salute. As we raise the sword towards the sky, the beam of white light expands, and the castle's oddly pale hue retreats into normal colors. 
We return up the stairs with the Master Sword in hand to the main castle room and find that the dozens of enemies at large are very much alive. We have to use the Blade of Evil's Bane to do what it was made to do and vanquish the minions of evil. As we carve our way through moblins and darknuts alike, we feel the power of the blade, and it feels like a natural extension of our own body. Its power is undeniable, and it makes relatively short work of such a group of foes. We leave the castle and reunite with the King of Red Lions in the courtyard, and as we ascend back to the surface of the Great Sea, the King says that we have indeed proven to be worthy of the title of hero. From now on, the challenges will grow in proportion to our own power, and we are set firmly on a path to confront the King of Evil himself. But now, with the power of the Master Sword at our side, we have the tools to beat him and to finally save Errol and all of the lands upon the Great Sea. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Matt, that was incredibly well done. That was, uh, you know, it cut to the essence of the thing. It hit all the high points. There was a lot to fit in there, and you did it perfectly. Oh, thank you. I uh, I tried very hard and uh, was kind of proud of this one. So You should be. You thank really you. should be. Well, let's move on to part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Max, I want to go to you first, and there's a specific topic that I want to get into before we get more specifically into other areas. Obviously, we'll talk about the dungeon when we get to that, but there's a lot to get into here. Last week, Matt and I had a pretty long conversation about the structure of the opening acts of this game, specifically how it was a little frustrating to be able to, um, you know, to, to be on the sea, to have access to the sail, the wind waker. Um, we, we are given access to the mechanics that we know that we need to be able to traverse this entire area. Um, we can see islands in the distance. They're all intriguing, but we're very much on rails in those, in those first two chapters. It really doesn't let you go anywhere other than where it wants you to go. Uh, this section of the game is the first um, it's the first time when everything is really opened up. Uh, we we go to, you know, basically all corners of the Great Sea uh, in this section, and the world just feels immediately way bigger. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that balance of things, like just just how good it feels for everything to start opening up here. Okay, so um, there's kind of a fundamental tension in the Wind Waker's world design. And it kind of comes to a bit of a head in this section of game. So specifically, the section between Forest Haven and Tower of the Gods, uh, I think, has has a lot of showcases a lot of the Wind Waker's flaws when it comes to exploration and world design. Um, so a lot of Zelda games traditionally, especially before the Wind Waker, follow almost this Metroidvania format where you have access to a certain percent of the game world. And as you explore around, you see stuff that you can't get to yet, right? Like you see a heart piece up on a ledge. And you're like, I don't know how to get that heart piece. And, you know, you see boulders that you can't lift or explode yet. But you can kind of take this mental note that for later that like, yeah, I'm going to want to come back here and explore this. Like, I feel like there's something here. I just can't do it yet. Um, and then you get the key item, like a bomb or a hookshot or whatever, that gives you access to more of the world. And every time you get an item, the world opens up further, like, you go from 40% to 50%, 75%, um, until towards the end of the game, like you got like 95%, and there's just little bits of things here and there you can't get to yet. Um, so they tried to apply that to the Wind Waker. 
right? There's there's a lot of stuff out there that you cannot access yet on the islands throughout the Great Sea. Um, and it it kind of I I find during this section of the game that I, I come across many islands and I want to explore them and I stop and I get on board and I, I kind of realize I'm missing something. I don't have the bow and arrow yet and I need it for su- such and such thing or I don't have X and Y items, which I won't mention because, you know, it'd be a spoiler, but, you know, there's various items that s- continue to unlock things you need. Um, and it's is kind of disheartening, a little bit demoralizing to land on an island, see stuff that will in the future be able to be interacted with, but you can't do it right now. Um, and that is why that feeling uh, is why they keep you on rails for so long, right? They don't want you to have that feeling too much. And if you explore around everywhere with the way they've built these islands using this Metroidvania format, if you explored everywhere too early on, you would do nothing but encounter things you can't interact with yet. So they kind of put themselves between a rock and a hard place here where they either put you on rails or they um, let you experience that dissatisfaction. So they kind of tried to balance the two and they put you on rails for a while and then they kind of start taking the rails off just like a, maybe a little early because you can still run into a bunch of those situations uh, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so interesting, though, because talking about the like last week we talked about, like we understood the issue that they were trying to address and we weren't sure if there was a great solution for it within the confines of the game as it exists. Right. And and that's double true this week because we have the inverse now, like this week, the frustration is no longer that we can't go where we want. Now we can go anywhere. But what you're talking about, we get to places and and we're just unable to, um, you know, unable to solve a whole lot of mysteries. We're unable to do a whole lot of meaningful exploration. So, um, and I and I understand why it ended up that way, right? Because this section of the game, like I said before, it has you going to so many places. You are definitely not going in a straight line from one place to another place and then doing another dungeon and then it opens up, right? Like um, if like it, it, it would have been impossible for them to employ invisible barriers, for instance, like they did in the early parts of the game because it, it just would have made no sense, right? Uh, you know, you would have uh, like – there are no straight lines from one part to the next grid space that you're supposed to be at, right? So it's it's kind of an unsolvable problem. I will say that it it frustrated me just a little bit less than I think it it did you. I, I do feel shades of that still, but um, to me, this section of the game kind of ushered in that uh like the, the first shades of that that sense of like wonder and exploration that i really look for in these in these games um honestly it's got it's got shades of what would go on to be so great about breath of the wild right because right. The, the the complete openness right. and the fact that there's an impressive level of draw distance in the islands right like you can actually see uh you can see interesting stuff from basically anywhere that you are at on the great sea you know right you can always see you know, and the biggest islands that are nearby, like maybe they're a square over in some compass direction. And there's there's always some other island you could see from no matter where. you. So are. I want to interject as the newbie here, 
because I know both of y'all have played, so you kind of knew what to expect going to this section of game. Um, yeah. This was the section between uh, Forest Haven and Great Fish Isle was probably the most frustrating for me because I spent a solid hour and a half or two hours doing most of that exploring. I was like, you know what? I've, I can go anywhere I want now, so I'm going to start filling in this map, and I'm going to go see if I can find cool things on the islands. Every single island I came to, I couldn't do anything because like, I, I didn't have bombs. I didn't... Bombs specifically, I feel like, are a huge part of exploration on most of the islands. Uh, bow and arrow. like It, it was just yeah. stuff that I could not do, and so I just found myself... Like after an hour and a half, I was like very dejected about the exploration. And Lyndon finally comes in and he's like, hey, you know, like, do you have the bombs yet? And I was like, no. What do you mean? Do I have bombs yet? And he was like, oh, well, you should probably stop what you're doing and like go a little bit further so that you can actually like do more things. And I'm really glad that I did that because I know you said when I walked in, you were in the middle of an exploration based on a tip that you had gotten from somebody on an island. One of the NPCs had told you something like, if you go to this grid square from yeah, here. Yeah, Fishman. Yeah, Fishman's like, if you go like three grid squares up and one over or something, that's, yeah, that's. One that, up, one up and four west. Yeah. You'll, you'll get the power that can freeze anything <laughs> and you'll be able to get into this volcano island and get the power within. And I was like, cool. And so I'm going to go do that. That so, sounds really fun. Yeah, of course. So Matt's going to go try and find a way to do this because that sounds awesome, right? Right. Yeah, that's sure. Cool but of course, quest. that's, you know. I guess slight spoilers here, but that's this is ice arrows. That's part of a that's part of a later dungeon quest. Like yeah. you literally, you 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 can't actually do that. I was like, point. oh cool, is there like an ice rod in this game? That sounds fun. Like because you know I'm thinking <laughs> Link to the Past, where ice rod you didn't need it, but you could have it. And it does cool things. Yeah, you could just find it at any time. So like I'm over here doing that. I had spent probably half an hour to an hour on windfall island trying to do some npc quests that i never completed any of them because i was like i just like don't know where to go that's also an unusual feeling for me in a 3d zelda game is i don't know where to go and how to complete things so like that would have been more fun for me had i not spent the previous hour trying to enjoy that and not being able to enjoy that so that it just felt like more unenjoyable yeah. like it was just like a compounding thing for me in this first like hour and a half two hours and of I like i don't mind not knowing what i'm doing right i don't mind that but i don't like not knowing what i'm doing and getting absolutely nothing out of it and i don't want to advocate too much for like artificial <clears throat> blockers of the kind that we were talking about last week but i do think that this section of the game might be improved if you were still unable to go out of your way between the forest haven and great fish isle because once you get to great fish isle and you see the destruction and you know the king of red lions is talking to you about jaboon and we have, we've got to go find him and now we have a problem to solve you know um I, I think that if you were forced to go straight there, then that sense of narrative urgency would kind of be enough to kind of push you further in the direction that you that you need to go. And it would have completely uh, solved the problem that that you were talking about. Yeah. Having, Matt. And like even even not a, a force. Right. Like the going from Dragon Roost to um, Forest Haven was a force. You could not go anywhere. But even if it was just like a. Every 10 minutes, King of Red Lions like hits you up, whether, you know, in person, if you're on the boat or via your magic rocks. <laughs> and he says, does a Navi. Yeah. He's like, hey, dude, um, we really need to go see Jaboon. We should get on that. Like 
if there's just a prompt there, because there's no sense of urgency, right? Like it is very rare in an early part of a Zelda game, in my opinion, to feel a sense of urgency to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. Um, you rely more on the narrative or on the world design to do that. Or and the as, fact that you just literally can't go anywhere. Yeah, that's what I, that's that, what I yeah. mean by world design, right? Yeah. Is like in yeah. Ocarina of Time, they were able to structure you in such a way that even if you went from uh, Kokiri Forest and you tried to go to Zoro's Domain, you could not do very much in there. Or if you tried to go to Death Mountain, you could not get past the Gate Guard. Like they had those types of things. You could still go and explore a little bit, yeah. but there were blockers that you just can't have on an ocean. Like you can't have those things unless you like create artificial cloud barriers that like you part the way with the pearls or something. Like I don't know. That would have been something they could have done. Actually, I, I kind of like that idea. They, yeah, I mean, they probably sure they could have done some like crazy, like this is a haunted ocean and like there's walls right. of water. And yeah, they could have come up with something. But I think there's something super interesting about this problem in the Wind Waker because, to my eyes, um, this is kind of a pivotal pivotal point in the series history because uh, in the Ocarina of Time and the Majora's Mask, they were early enough in 3D games that they could have all these walls. They could have relatively linear progression through, through what spaces were available to you. Um, and it would still feel like this wide open world because we weren't used to 3d yet. Um, and the wind waker was starting to reach a point where like that was becoming less true. They needed to actually give you freedom but nobody had really figured out freedom in 3D games too much yet. Like it wasn't really a thing that had been done before. And they wanted to keep that that exploration because throughout the series history, exploration has been a big thing up until this point. And they try. They try to do progression the way it works in Ocarina of Time um, with a world design similar to Ocarina of Time Majora's Mask where you get items and they unlock access to things. And it kind of creates this problem. Um, and I'm guessing that by the time they really were aware of it as a major issue, like, you know, they were probably in production and like, it's not like they were going to overhaul their whole game at that point. Um, and then the next few games, they kind of rein in the freedom, uh, to a lesser extent Twilight Princess does. Like, I remember playing Twilight Princess and feeling like, oh, this isn't feel like exploration as much as the Wind Waker did. And then, you know, Skyward Sword, of course, goes to the extreme in that direction. Um, so I think this was a this was a wall that they ran into in game design and they didn't figure out how to solve it. So they bounced right. in the other direction uh, and Bill Breath of the Wild, of course, which yes. did figure out how to solve it, which is to give you all the rules. <laughs> right, yeah, right. yeah. Tabula rasa, right? Yeah. And, but I, I do want to say that. I think there's a lot of validity to this criticism. With all of that being said, I still manage to get a lot of of meaningful stuff done on the Great Sea in this section of game. It all basically happened after I got the bombs, like you said, Matt. Like yeah. once once I got once I yeah. left Windfall Island, once I'd done that whole thing and I had the bombs, and then it's just going from there to Outset Island. From that point, I mean, man, I I probably I've probably got fifteen or sixteen grids mapped at this point. I mean, I visited three great fairies. I got another bottle. Like I I just you know, 
I did tons of stuff and it was all super fun. Like it, it's just I, I, I think that the I think that the reins were taken off just a little too early. And like I'm I'm frustrated because I didn't have time to do those kinds of things after I had wasted two hours, you know, like we're, and that that is just a byproduct of us doing it in this format. Right. It was like we're, we're on a time crunch to finish sections of game. So like had I had leisure time to do whatever I wanted, I would have spent more time exploring. But once I, you know, kind of set aside exploration, um, I went and got the pearl and then I went and started setting the pearls where they're supposed to go. And I tried to hit a couple things in between. Um, and I didn't, I hit one great fairy on outside Island. I got the bombs and I got like two pieces of heart because I beat the sploosh kaboom mini game. And I beat the other cannonball mini game that's on an Island in the West. It's on, uh, it's on spectacle Island. Yeah. So like I, I did like those things, but like I would have loved to, and I will be doing that this week, obviously, you know, now that we're saying all this I'm, and I'm saying all that to say that, like, I think that there is such a, um, promise of excellent exploration and it was soured for me this week specifically, not like for all time. So I don't want anyone to panic and saying that I hate exploration in Wind Waker. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this week specifically was frustrating because it was just a huge, basically waste of time. And like that, that's frustrating. And I don't want to feel that way. Yeah, so no, that, I'm sure that I won't feel that way next week. So yeah, tune well, in next week for a more positive take. But that, that's understandable. Is it fair to say, though, and we're, we're delving into a little bit of a narrative discussion now. But is it fair to say that once you get to Great Fish Island, I mean, the, the stakes immediately raise and we are kind of set on a progression of events that all feel very intense. Like the, mm-hmm. the narrative urgency is ramped up to a pretty incredible degree. And we have a lot of really cool story that's sort of covered here. Yeah, I I as much as I really like the spooky uh, exploration theme, I was uh, I was on a mission to get spooky exploration theme gone. Not because I didn't like it. I loved spooky exploration theme. It was great. But I was like, I feel the need. Oh, you to, mean the, the music like when it's raining? And yeah. It's like, and it's it's it, kind of a cool combo of exploration theme plus Ganon's castle from Ocarina of Time. Yeah. It was a really cool little like minor key mix up well, there. You know, I liked why, it. you know why I love this so much is because especially in the rain with like storm clouds and everything. There's something so linked to the past about hearing Ganon's theme in the overworld music combined with like a thunderstorm, you know, like those yeah. first few moments of a link to the past when you leave your yeah. house. Yeah, it was, it was really great. The The aesthetic and the, the vibe of all of that was spot on and made me feel an urgency to go like, all right, I got to go get this pearl. And once I got the pearl, the urgency was lessened because, you know, we're back to sunny skies and rainbows. Mm-hmm. And um, but it still felt like kind of urgent, like King of Red Lions is like, we got to go place these pearls right now. We like got to get this. We got to get this boat moving, pun intended. And um, yeah, I, I thought it was very narratively well done once you get to Great Fish Isle. So while we're talking about Jaboon and the acquiring of uh, Nehru's Pearl, Max, would you like to be the one to inform Matt just how much longer this section of game could have been? <laughs> well, this would have been two episodes. Uh, so they, they've revealed in, in several interviews um, that there were two dungeons cut from The Wind Waker uh, during production. 
uh, which I think is unusual for Zelda games. I think once they begin production, which means that like the game is roughly planned out to some extent and uh, they kind of know what they're making and then they make it. uh, They don't usually cut a piece as large as a dungeon, a whole dungeon. Uh, but they did from the Wind Waker cut two dungeons, and I'm I'm of course I'm like ninety percent sure one of them would have been Great Fish Isle. Well, um, I can I can see that because there are like some doors. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I said I can see that because there are some doors and like things that look like you could possibly go inside of Great Fish Isle that are in the wreckage that I like. Well, I always, half-heartedly <laughs> tried to get to in my in my mind. Obviously, we don't know specifically what this would have been. Jaboon, Jaboon's belly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like in my mind, it's just like Jaboon. Like you get in, you find Jaboon, and he's like, "Oh man, I would love to give you Nehru's pearl, but oops, I swallowed, swallowed it. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> gotta go inside my tummy." Um, so anyway, yeah, all that is to say oh. we almost had another another dungeon um, that you would have had to go through to get Nehru's Pearl. And I know that especially when the HD remaster was coming out and it was announced, I know that a lot of the online discussion was around like, "Ooh, are they going to restore cut dungeons? Right. I don't think that was ever on the table. But um, but I as much as I, I love getting extra dungeons whenever I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm greedy for dungeons. Give me all of them. Um I do think I mean we are still sticking to the three dungeons and then the master sword convention of Zelda games here, right? Like we've got our first two and then yes, we just sort of get given Nehru's pearl, but then we've got the Tower of the Gods and then Master Sword. So it, it is still appropriate, but yeah, what could have been? It's fun to think about. Yeah. Yeah, before before we get to narrative, I, I think that this is a good little plug for a question we got on our Discord from Haru, um, you know, asking about how how do we feel about ocean traversal now? And I think just to sum up kind of our, our thoughts in general right now is that um, <clears throat> there's a at least for me, there's a lot of promise in it. Um, it feels very lengthy for no reason in a lot of in a lot of places like i literally at one point i set my course to go to the next thing i needed to go to set my wii u remote gamepad down walked away got water came back and i was like less than halfway to my goal and i was like well all right i guess we're just still going (laughs) so uh (laughs) this still happening yeah Uh, okay i should talk about technology yes, here yeah. go for it and world design so uh the wind waker in a lot of ways is heavily defined by the constraints of the tech at the time um in ways that weren't obvious to me until much later in my i don't know game dev career um the way open world games usually work uh well let me back up the way older games before open world games would work is every time you entered a room Uh, or like left one map to go to another, they would unload from memory everything that was in the area you just left and load into memory everything in the area you're going into. Um, And and everything in the game was was divvied up into these, uh, the Zelda devs called them rooms, um, that were like, uh, the contents of this room are probably maxing out the amount of memory they have, right? They have to like make sure everything within a given room fits within the amount of RAM that the game console at the time had. Uh, So that's older games. Um, Open world games in modern games, the way they work is they kind of subdivide the world into a grid, Uh, either a square grid or a hex grid, depending on how it's set up. Um, 
and the way it works is you you have you have the space the square that you're in loaded and you have the squares all around you loaded so if it's a square grid at every any given point you have nine squares of the map loaded and then beyond that point um they load in like low poly lower quality and lower detail versions of like just the big landmarks past those points so that you kind of have like this uh blurry version of the world loaded out beyond where you are uh and then as you travel around they like when you they unload stuff in the direction you're leaving and load more stuff in the direction you're going um so that's modern games the wind waker was at a time when they were using that technique but the available ram was so low that they couldn't do it with um like fully uh sculpted landscapes like if they had tried to have a world like this that you were walking around like in breath of the wild they they, they wouldn't have had enough ram for it um so i'm pretty sure like i think there's a really strong <laughs> chance that that's why they wanted to make an ocean based game is cuz it would allow them to do this open world thing because all they had to load was these small islands and i, I think that that's an interesting concession um, in order to achieve a goal I do think that it it's it's such an it's such a fun victory of circumstance to me because I love the fantasy of sailing and ocean exploring, right? And so it, it, it's great because it kind of tricks you into thinking that it's actually bigger and more open and it's accomplishing more than it really is. Absolutely, like they did a great job of finding an amazing thing they could do within the constraints that they had. Um. So the reason I'm bringing this up now, uh, because it seems like a total tangent probably, is I found a quote recently about the HD remake where Aonuma says they always wanted to make the boat go a lot faster. And they had to make it slower in order to have time to load the world as ah, you were traveling. Gotcha. So, and that's why the, I mean, that's why it feels way better when the wind waker hd gives you the high speed sail um, which i don't know if you've gotten that yet matt i have not uh, yeah i i got i got it i told myself that play. i was going to wait to get it until after i had the master sword so that's actually probably the first thing i'm going to go grab as soon as i log back on i was uh i spent like most of this section of game with a full wallet and it was like very frustrating to me um, so I kept finding all these rupees and like finding treasure chests. And I, I landed a hundred hits on Orca when I was on outside Island and I, he gave me rupees and I was like, no, my wallet's already full. Um, so I was mad about that. And I, at the first chance I got, I went to wind waker during, um, after the storm and spent all of my money. Nice. Uh, and got Very the nice. <laughs> <laughs> Won all the auctions. Yeah, I, that is going to be now that I know of its existence, which I you didn't spoil that for me. So don't feel bad because I I when I'm writing plot recaps, I generally try to have um, my guides pulled up so that I don't miss anything. Um, and Zelda Dungeon.net has their guide and they do like 90% of exploration in this section of game. So I was just trying to scroll past most of that so that I didn't spoil anything for myself. Um, I did see like little glimpses of you can get 18 different heart pieces in this one section of game. And I was like, bro, I did not do that at all. And also saw that like, um, you know, 
the fast sale and some other things. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I need to go do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, uh, if you know what you're looking for and where it is, which I don't have this game. I've said before, I don't have this game memorized to the same extent that I do like Ocarina of Time or whatnot, but I remembered enough to, to really kind of add quite a few things to my collection in this section of the game between heart pieces, wallets, all that kind of stuff. So it is, it is there. You can do it. Um, I would say that if you have never played it before, then maybe after you beat the tower of the gods is probably the best time to, to really sit down and devote some, some real mental energy to doing that. So let's talk about the narrative real quick, because we've got, I mean, like I said, we have a lot of really interesting story beats in this section of the game. The The intensity of the story picks up in a big way. Matt, I mean, wh- where did you kind of land with with everything that happens here? And just to, just to clarify, um, even though we haven't talked about the actual dungeon yet, we'll do that in part three, feel free to get into – you know, the stuff that happens below the sea, because that's, I mean, it's all such a big part of the story here. So uh, I, I am liking this story a lot. Like I am really getting involved in it now. Um, I'm glad Max, you told me about the missing dungeon because I kind of felt like getting the pearl was way too easy compared to the other two. Like I was like, why am I just getting gifted this pearl? That was kind of weird, but it makes a lot more sense now knowing that they, had to for time and or space memory constraints cut a dungeon out of it so like that that makes more sense now um i think that um the the parallels that you see between the spiritual stones and the goddess orbs and even the call the direct callbacks um in their housing locations and the spirits guarding them jaboon jabu jabu blah 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 deku tree is just straight up deku tree tree pope um like all of that i i'm loving and it's something we talked about at the very be- on the very first episode was the the direct intentional parallels to you know ocarina of time are really great um as we progress um into the more urgent state of like okay we've got to we've got to get this move in we've got to like actually start making progress towards preventing ganon from winning because he's doing this crazy thing where he's cursed the entire great sea with an unending storm and unending night like that that's pretty high stakes like right (laughs) out like pretty early in the game right like we're less than halfway into the game and ganon's already doing like that so that's good um the finding the um placing the orbs to create the the triforce in the middle of the ocean that brings up the tower of the gods like that was cool and um their their lore explanation for you know obviously i know this but it hasn't been stated explicitly in the game yet is that you know the gods flooded hyrule because um it was overrun but they kind of made contingency plans for eventually that may not need to be the case but someone's gonna have to prove themselves worthy i thought it was a really interesting narrative through line from adventure of link where the Tower of the Gods is full of enemies, not Ganon's minions that are designed to test your capability of being a hero. Like the entire purpose of the Tower of the Gods is exactly like the palaces in Adventure of Link. Like that is a direct 
narrative connection uh, between them. And I really thought yeah. that was cool and something I never would have known until last season when we played Adventure of Link. So like even callbacks all the way back to Adventure of Link is really well done and very well structured. And I like it a lot. And then, you know, we cap it all off in this section of the game by going to Hyrule Castle and seeing what Hyrule Castle looked like centuries or millennia after uh, the hero of time and seeing the much larger castle and the grandeur of uh, what Hyrule was at its peak when it fell. And, um, you know, the gigantic statue of the hero of time, which looks very much like our link, obviously, because the art style is the same. Um, and the way that, you know, they somehow moved the master sword or maybe they just <laughs> grew the castle large enough to encompass the temple of time and made it the sub basement of Hyrule castle, which I think is probably more likely. Um, and then seeing the stained glass of the sages within the, the sword chamber was just beautiful and mind blowing and was so cool. Um, yeah. So this is like, I, 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 I've said it before. I'm a sucker for all of this game's direct references to Ocarina of Time. I just love it so much. And so there's a few things that I thought were really neat here, especially once you get beneath the sea, um, in, in terms of your discussion point around Hyrule Castle and the Temple of Time and where the Master Sword is located, I've actually always been kind of of the, my headcanon is that, you know, Hyrule Castle being situated in the middle of this huge lake, right? Yeah. I had always thought that, like, after Ocarina of Time, Ganon's castle was demolished and his little lava pit became a lake. A lake, and the new Hyrule castle was built in the middle of it. You know, like, and how would the Master Sword get there? Well, I don't know. They just they moved it. I don't know. You can't move it. Nobody could pick it up except Link. Um, you can. Um, they they cut out the floor that it was in. (laughs) (laughs) It's like it's like it's like Thor's hammer. Like, yeah, you can't pick it up, but you you can pick up the things around it. You stick it on a trailer. Is the trailer worthy? I don't know. (laughs) Um, So, anywho, that's just that's just my little hook cannon. But I I absolutely loved the depictions of the sages as well in that chamber. It, It was so cool, and to see like stained glass recreations of Ganon in his beast form that was that was epic that are down there it's just it's so it's so neat max i know that when we were chatting on teams the other day you told me that this is like from a story perspective one of your one of your favorite narrative bits of any zelda game yeah um i think this whole section of game but in particular of course the part when you go under underwater is is maybe my very favorite moment in the entire series um, which is saying a lot like it it's it's in contention for that at least <laughs> um I kind of want to talk about the first half of this first though uh if that's all right I absolutely adore the story kind of narrative beat that happens um once that begins once you reach great fish Isle right uh there's so many things that are interesting and never really done in the Zelda series that occur here. Um, I mean, and the first one is just a game actually portraying Ganon exercising kind of devastating power on the land, right? We just don't ever see that. It never does anything. He's just kind of usually this big bad who sits in a castle and like, maybe there's a time jump and things have gotten worse, but you don't ever witness anything. Um, except, this time and like you get there right after it's happened he has destroyed an entire island 
Um, and we just, that's, that's terrifying display of his power. Uh, and kind of up until this point in the story, like everyone's kind of been like, yeah, there's a scary forsaken fortress. We hear bad things are happening, but nobody's like worried. Right. There isn't really a sense of danger to, to the great sea. Um, and, and then, then bam, he wipes a, an Island that presumably had a settlement on it off the map. Um, I'm sure. Did you feel when you got there, uh, Matt? I was I was shocked that they had literally destroyed an island. Like you never see that destructive power, right? Outside of like maybe you could compare it to what Ganon uh, Dorf did to Ganon's castle in um, Ocarina of Time, where it's just like carved out a huge section of ground, right? Like it's that level of destructive power, but you see it. In what is apparently such a short span of time that before you went into Forest Haven, that island was still very much there and very much fine. And then, like, from the time yeah. you enter Forest Haven to the time you get there, it's gonzo. It is destroyed. It looks like, I mean, it literally looks like a creature just raked it with huge claws, right? Like, that's kind of the, that was the impression that I got was, like, something just came down and just, just ravaged it with this gigantic monster claws and it was crazy it was crazy i i loved it i loved the effect yes uh so i remember like i remember being i'm pretty like emotional like feeling the emotions of this as a kid when i first played this um there's a little bit of weirdness here that feels a little rushed right like Nobody really worries about whoever lived on this island. Nobody ever brings them up. Like, there's buildings on this island. I think a lot of people died here, but eh. Even even the, the postman doesn't bring it up. Um, what What's his name? Quill. Um, but other than that little thing, Quill is a character I love because Quill is a character that has agency in the story of a Zelda game. And he's not named Link, Zelda, or Ganon. Um, and that's actually pretty rare, right? To have a character that actually like does stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, like he, he pops up with news. He, he took initiative to help link out at the very beginning on outset Island. Um, and he kind of continues that here when he shows up and he's like, he's being, he's a messenger sent by Valu. The sky spirit. Um, Like that's kind of a big deal. He's basically a prophet in old Testament terms. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I remember like this time around I, didn't, I don't know if i really paid too much attention to quill in the past but this time around i was like oh man i love quill um quill's doing stuff quill's fun uh like normally you have to be like chic or something like you have to be a character of that magnitude to to be doing things in a zelda story um yeah, I definitely agree. Quill is uh, Quill is a great friend <laughs> in this in this section of the game, <laughs> and is is really helping uh, do what you're talking about, Max. But also serving as kind of a connection point between all of the places that we've been before, you know, and um, and definitely doing this really neat thing where all of these previous, like you know, Valu and Dragon Roost Island, these places that we've been, keeping them top of mind and feeling like everything we've been doing together is connected and all part of one big story. Um, and I, I think that he's a really good use of a of a side character in that way. 
Um, and then even yeah. and then even moving past Quill, you know, we get a lot of characterization around other other side characters that we've met uh, before now in this section. Um, you know, we we yeah. group back up with the pirates. They all have some really cool stuff to do here. Um, Tetra is obviously a main character, but Tetra even, you know, I, I, I'm very curious, Matt, because in past episodes, you've sort of mentioned how Tetra and her characterization wasn't your favorite, you know? But, yeah, but here we start seeing like an, some evolution of that character, right? Where that like that tough outer facade of like pirate captain is still there, mm-hmm. but we get some fun little winks and nods that kind of start to show us that there's a lot more to this character than just that. Yeah, I, I am excited to see that grow. I saw it and I acknowledged it, and I even acknowledged it in the plot recap as, as best as I could in the constraints of that document um i I, yeah i mean i guess that's the best i can say for now having not seen the rest of it you know i am excited to see where that goes and how far that goes because her her concern that was levied first and foremost to and for the people of outset island over the the pearl um bespeaks her true character who i i know what i know to be and I'm excited to see that grow. I'm still very interested in how they're going to weave her character into the story from here on out, because I am not seeing a easy through line of weaving character growth when you see her once every three dungeons and you get like five lines of dialogue. Don't you worry, Matt. She gets woven. I mean, I'm sure she does. <laughs> I'm just saying I, I don't see from my point of view, having never played this game, an easy way to do that. So I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Can we just talk about, so we're talking about all of our like favorite characters and people who are doing awesome heroic things. Can we spend one minute talking about the absolutely terrible owner of the bomb shop and how he gets his comeuppance here? (laughs) Oh yeah. He, he gets, he gets absolutely dominated for having a, like literally they call him out. They're like, bet you feel dumb for having a monopoly now. Don't you feel dumb trying to charge pirates for a, bombs like for that much like i thought that was awesome <laughs> stick it to the capitalists <laughs> that was great i i appreciate it i have a note here that's like the pirates are kind of like gray more morals i love it like you so rarely see that in all the games everyone's like good or bad pretty much right um and like here we have these like anti-heroes that you just you don't get in zelda um love it Love those scenes with the pirates. The whole the whole thing where they were like, if you and Petra had a baby, it'd be the best pirate ever. I was like, okay, guys, I think we're taking this a little bit too far, but kind of funny, I guess. It's that it's that goofy <laughs> tone that is notably one of your favorite things about this game so far. <laughs> still is still is not. Still is just not my favorite thing. No. Oh, still not. <laughs> uh has not grown on me yet. I'll let you know if it ever does. <laughs> okay, so, sounds good. Can't wait. Um, so yeah, okay. So we we get the bombs on Windfall Island, and then we go immediately back to Outset Island. And there's just a few notable things here that I want to bring up. One is um, so Max, you already mentioned that you can go and revisit Orca and start doing that sword uh, combat mini game with him, and that's a lot of fun. Um, I for some reason had never actually done the thing where you heal Link's grandma before. I'm sorry, what? The the what you monster. Yeah. Well, I just never knew that you could. I never like I never talked to the right NPCs before playing this game and realized that that was like a thing that you could do. Um 
but yeah, that moment when, you know, you go talk to the outside island residents and, um, Orca's brother's like, oh yeah, your grandmother, she's not doing so well, but I think fairy dust might cure her, you know? Um, and so you go release a fairy next to grandma and she wakes up and she's feels much better and she's so happy that you're safe. And also here's this like two helping potion that restores all your life and magic and doubles your attack power like it's a pretty neat little the most op thing ever. well i happen to have a fairy from the last dungeon that i was in so i'm gonna go take that to grandma right away because i didn't know that that was what was needed get your potion matt i shall well yeah. it's mostly yeah, to heal grandma in, in zelda uh fairies can heal dementia <laughs> uh, canon there you go it's it's official we have confirmation here also uh, speaking of fairies they look very sad when you capture them in a bottle poor fairies that made me that made me feel bad about capturing a fairy i don't know if i'm gonna do it anymore sad little cupids i know he looks very very distressed <laughs> it that fairy definitely thinks you're gonna bite its head it, off yeah like, are you gonna it eat is me worried about its future yeah no, so promise. after getting Nehru's pearl from Jaboon, who is another interesting character in his own right, I mean, I love this trifecta of ancient Hylian demigods, basically, between Valu, the Deku tree, and Jaboon, yeah. you know, um, and, and also their kind of their narrative similarities, like you mentioned, Matt, to Ocarina of Time <laughs> deities of the land, I guess. Um, so that's all really cool. We get we get Nehru's uh, pearl from Jaboon. And uh, once we place all three of those pearls, we successfully raise an entire edifice from the ocean floor. That is the Tower of the Gods. And, of course, you know, this is getting us uh, very close to the dungeon map. So I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to dive right into that yet before we've had a chance to talk more about the narrative implications of the beneath the sea stuff. Um, and so I, I think that time has come. Max, feel free to just blaze that trail for us if you want okay so um when i was 13 or 14 or whatever it was and i played this game for the first time i didn't know that this was flooded hyrule like there's some hints here and there you, it, it tickles the back of your mind but i didn't know i wasn't sure it wasn't confirmed like in my head when i first started this game i was like oh this is like some neighboring sea land or something or like we're not in Hyrule anymore um and then I started to get suspicious of course but like thinking that it's that the great sea is some flooded Hyrule is very different from going down that beam of light and seeing Hyrule still there lush like beautiful landscape below you um when, at the time, what was racing through my head was that they pulled a link to the past on us and that, that we, what I was seeing was the second world of the game, which is that I would be able to explore this whole undersea landscape. That's what I thought was going to happen. Um, like, did you have a similar feeling when you first experienced this? Yeah, I Linden. Uh, you see, this is tough because uh, so I played I played Wind Waker for the first time in college. I played it real late. Um, because I, gotcha. because I didn't own a GameCube, uh, like I, I had an N64 and it was my main console. And then I just basically skipped the GameCube and had an Xbox at that time. And so I, um, yeah, I, I just did, I did definitely did not play this game 
on its time of release. And so by the time I actually did get around to it, I'm 90% sure that I had had this plot point spoiled for me. Ah, just like Matt. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to avoid it if you're a Zelda fan and it's all these years later. Um, so I had that that wild hope in my head. And now you remember a few minutes ago, I talked about how loading tech works, right? Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's to me, it was literally impossible for them to provide me that world to explore with the way their loading was working <laughs> in this game. Um, but I dreamed. Um, and it was like such a surreal, like otherworldly experience going down there. And um, like, I think I like held my breath through the whole thing, right? You're like, you're going in and it's silent. No, there's no music. There's no dialogue. There's no sound. Nothing's happening. Like you see that frozen moblin right in front of your camera and you're like, what, what happened here? Like there's such a sense of sense of mystery and like lost, like loss here. Yeah. Right. Um, well, and it's so tantal- it's so tantalizing well, too, because especially with all of this game's direct callbacks to ocarina of time you get down to this castle and then the the crazy thing is that it even allows you to walk out the back door or i guess it's the front door of the castle right and walk out onto that like that bridge and you can see submerged hyrule you know you can see like the land of hyrule around you and and fictionally it's just so interesting because as somebody who grew up on ocarina of time and loved it it always felt to me like all of those places were just beyond there you know like they were all out there and of course that's not true right this is just a little bubble in the game but like i must have spent hours like over the course of playing this game like coming back down here and looking and like trying to look out at that landscape and like spots. I I was trying to do that a lot as well. Like I walked out there before I, before I even went down into the basement, it was actually probably the first thing I did before I uh, completed the basement puzzle. I was like, that door looks like I can go, I can go out of it. And I did. And I walked all the way until I hit the bubble and I was like, no, let me out. It's that, you know, the meme of the let me in guy, except let me out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, out that door is Hyrule, and I want to explore Hyrule. I love Hyrule. Hyrule's my Hyrule favorite. is is my I home. It so but it's bad. so interesting because, and I know this is a discussion that happened on our Discord, but the whole like geography of what's happening here, right, is just so <laughs> weird because it's it's I it, I don't think it's actually been stated yet at this point in the game, but like the implication is that the islands of the Great Sea are like the the peaks of mountains from submerged Hyrule, right? And you can even see crazy skinny mountains jutting up from the landscape when you're under the sea and it, it looks like yep. they go up towards the sun it's like oh yeah that's like the islands like, and stuff it's very weird looking i think the goddesses like realized they made a mistake and like din with her strong flaming arms uh was like hold some landscaping shenanigans <laughs> to rape she was like islands. look guys we're not doing um, this for everybody I so i'm just know, gonna like <laughs> i want i want to know the logistical implications of this like if you were a scuba diver could you like could you like dive down and like hit the bubble in the great sea and then would you just fall yeah, yeah fall. like would you just fall through it or how does that work how yeah. does it work <laughs> when we pull up treasure chests from the sea floor what is the where are they the <laughs> how long is our grapple hook like did we are or how deep is the ocean that's i think a better question how how deep is did the I, actual ocean 
Am I going to pull up the sign for Lon? Oh, Ranch? that would be cool. <laughs> like <laughs> that's uh, ooh, man, that's it, you look, it, it boggles the mind. It truly, it truly turns you upside down if you think about it for too long. Um, but you know, for what it is, it's just so, it's so cool and so awe inspiring. And I actually, I, I love yeah. this depiction of Hyrule Castle as well. Um, you know, I, yeah. I'm a sucker for being able to go into like Zelda games that allow you to go into Hyrule Castle in like a not corrupted state because I feel like so often we end up in Hyrule Castle, but it's like evil haunted Hyrule Castle or whatever, you know. Um, but this game, you know, we really do get to see, as Matt said earlier, it's frozen in time. We get to see what Hyrule Castle looked like on the day that it fell, essentially, you know, and yeah, and it's so fun. And And by God. I love whenever the Zelda series is down to reuse the Hyrule Castle theme from Link to the Past. <laughs> yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And yep. it, it just sounds so uh, good. It's I think Koji Kondo said in an interview it's his favorite track from Link to I the mean, Past. I mean, it's really good. And he's right. Doug he is it. right. The, he is objectively right and everybody else's well, far opinions be it are from wrong. Me, far be it from me to to say that Koji Kondo is wrong about anything. I personally still prefer the Dark World theme, but uh, it's really good. But but also, yeah, that Hyrule Castle theme is freaking amazing. And I just I love that it gets I, I love that it gets a bit of a spotlight here. I love the eerie thing that happens when you first get in there and it's still frozen and you can hear the soundtrack like trying to poke through like it's a I don't know, like it's a tape that's like worn out. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's so neat um what what like kind of a, just an interesting question is like when you guys do this section of game and you leave hyrule castle like what are you hoping to accomplish afterwards like what do you want to happen in the story like I, this is hard for you matt or Lyndon, because you already know what happens but like matt like what do you in your heart of hearts, what do you want to save after all yeah, this? Yeah, like in my heart of hearts, what I want most is to vanquish Ganon and drain the Great Sea and then have Hyrule become the land again and the islands to, you know, <laughs> kind of lower back down and just be and we should Hyrule call again. It this land. land. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Curse your sudden but inevitable so, betrayal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah like that is i i don't that's definitely how i feel yeah well. i don't think that's going to happen because obviously a uh, phantom hourglass and uh spirit tracks happen in this in the great sea era of um this timeline so, so like i know that that's not going to happen but like seeing that because what i take away from this section most of all is that the goddesses actually froze hyrule in time and then flooded it so, like, theoretically, everything is pretty okay down there. So, like, yeah. uh, other than, like, you know, the monsters, but, like, now that Link is back and the hero is around, time and he's presumably will, I don't know if he gets the Triforce in this game or not, don't tell me, but, um, like, presumably could happen so like i don't know i know that it's not going to but that's like that was my like oh it's here it's real it's not like an underwater haunted castle like from a horror movie and like wow this is awesome so i will say the logistics of this thing are interesting though because like we do know that people escaped whatever this was right like people people got out of here and became 
you know, the, the pot, inhabitants the popula- of the, the yeah. yeah, the inhabitants of the Great Sea. Yeah. So I, I am curious. And when you pull the Master Sword, the time freeze unlocks. Right. And so Right. Right. And 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 so are we I guess are we to believe that the time freeze has like been lifted on the entire kingdom, you know? I thought it's, it was just for Hyrule Castle. I thought it was just that like the, the, the little magic bubble. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That was my little head cannon. There is uh, unfortunately no way to know. I don't think, but indeed, it it is fun to think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. Sorry, you go, Max. Anyway, I I want you. To, I, I I just uh, I agree with what you want to save, Matt. And I just wanted to hear you say it now. And uh, remember, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a that's a tease, but it's a good one. Hey, Max, will you move your mic a little closer to your mouth again? You, you got a little quiet again for a yes. second. Yes, this better. Yeah, there you go. I keep excitedly like rolling my chair around and like moving my torso <laughs> animatedly. The, and, the uh, pod is just that good. Look, it's- we we had to disabuse <laughs> ourselves of that habit very early on because we had a couple recordings early on where Lyndon was constantly like elbowing me, saying "Get closer to your mic," and I was like, "Fine." So we've gotten into the uh, <laughs> yeah. into the statuesque habit that's, of that's, remaining that's me, the podcast tyrant. Um, <laughs> yeah, agreed. Okay, so. Does anyone have anything else they want to say about Below the Sea before we talk about the Tower of the Gods? All good? I'm good. Okay. Oh, uh, no, I do okay. not. I'm, uh, okay. I'm good. So this brings us to part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon. <laughs> an hour and a half in. God, We're halfway through. <laughs> uh, that would be an hour and 45 minutes in. Yeah. The Tower of the Gods, the dungeon of the week, the dungeon that we literally raised from the seafloor. Matt, your observation about the about the narrative connection to Adventure of Link is actually so cool. I love, love, love the concept of this entire dungeon where it's just – it's something that has been laying and, and waiting to test – the hero, um, and I think that it's actually a very appropriate dungeon, um, you know, for that. It's it's definitely not a pushover dungeon. Um, it's got a lot of very fun mechanics. It's got a, a, a pretty great sense of of difficulty, you know. Yeah. Um, it is it is not easy. Um, and and like I said at the top of this episode, I knew that it was going to be a Max Nichols ass dungeon because there's a lot of really fun. Um, a lot of really fun space altering mechanics that kind of take place here. It's, it's definitely not a combat dungeon. It is a puzzle solving dungeon. So with all that being said, Max, I'm going to send it over to you. Um, Just, I I guess, give us some upfront thoughts about the tower of the gods and why you think it's such a good example of dungeon design in this game. Yeah. Um, I love the tower of the gods. It's my favorite dungeon, the wind waker by far. One of my favorites in the series um, I actually generally don't find the Wind Waker's dungeons to be very good. I think they're one of the weakest parts of the game. Uh, but I think this dungeon is an exception to that, and, and it stands amongst the best of the series. And the reasons why, like, it, there's a bunch of reasons why, but the biggest one is that it has just this amazing sense of place and ambiance to it. Like, that, uh, that deep kind of, like, choral... Um, chanting in the music is like really ominous uh and it feels very otherworldly it's got all these like alien lines in the architecture which now we can look back and we're like yeah that's that's very similar to the sheikah architecture from breath of the wild 
Um, because they're influenced by the same stuff. Uh, and so that that music, that weird architecture, that suddenly fighting all these like old robots, like you're not fighting Ganon's minions for the most part in here. Like this is like Matt said, a test being administered by the gods via their robots. Um, like you could find Fi in here and fight her, but uh, yeah. So since the place is huge. Huge, huge, huge here. Um, and it's not something we see very often in the Zelda series is the goddesses, the three goddesses depicted as as ominous, right? The, the Wind Waker does a lot to like be like, yeah, the, the three goddesses, they're actually kind of scary. They'll flood your land if you pray to them for help. And they'll, uh, they, they'll give you a scary tower with robots that want to kill you. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely I want to talk for a second about the parallels to Breath of the Wild and kind of the techno fantasy of everything, because this that that's something that I had kind of forgotten about this dungeon. I remembered it being very ancient. And Max, I think in the discord, you mentioned that a lot of the architecture is like, you know, Incan, like very, um, you know, very Central American ancient in its aesthetic and that's definitely true but we've got like a lot of like neon blue glowing robotic creatures and i mean honestly stuff that feels straight out of a uh straight out of a breath of the wild shrine here so matt let's go ahead and throw it to you just from a mechanic standpoint this dungeon has a lot going on we have a constant raising and lowering of the water um we've got a uh, we've got a mechanic involving you know, the controlling of statues that have to go on certain plinths. Of course, we have the return of one of your favorite items in in any Zelda game. So bows and arrows, lots of stuff going on here. How did you feel about this dungeon? Yeah, I really, really like this dungeon. I think that this has to go in my top five Zelda dungeons I've ever played. Um, and it was it was a little bit on the brink there when we started doing the first statue and he was just following you around nobody likes escort missions escort missions are literally always the worst in every game ever and i was very terrified that we were about to have just a slew of escort missions but it turned into not that and instead turned into you know how do you use the new ability of controlling um special objects to maneuver around and solve a puzzle. And I love that mechanic. Um, That was a very fun mechanic. It was like, it was a little bit like the beetle in Skyward Sword, where you go into a different viewpoint and maneuver around with a different object. Um, But, you know, more limited because obviously it's just in a very confined space. Um, I, I think the aesthetic is wonderful. Um, the various times where you have to light things on fire and jump across some um, uh, some floating boxes, boxes oh, was good. good. You're talking now about my least favorite room of the entire dungeon. I like that room. I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> I I spent way too long in that stupid room trying to line the boxes up 
in the right like distance from each other so that I could I fell into the water so many times doing this. I don't know. Maybe I just have like a mental block about it. But like the fact that you have to wait for the water to like lower in order to reposition the boxes and then go try again. Man, th- seriously, this room in the dungeon made me want to pull my hair out. I had that's such how a hard I, time with it. That's how I felt about Nico's puzzle was I hated Nico's puzzle with a burning passion. But I liked this dungeon so much. Um the dark nut fight was fun. I like reintroducing the dark nuts. Um, I, I, this bow, I, uh, need to get a feel for it. It feels like its range is substantially less than most other bows that I can remember. Um, it, and it's definitely not the sniper rifle of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's got which, a really you know, satisfying clink sound when it hits things, it, though. It does. It, it's very, um, kinetic feeling like i like it um a lot it's the flight path of the arrow is also a little bit weird it kind of wobbles so i thought that was a little interesting um the 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 room that has the bunch of switches the eye switches and the moving platforms that one i felt like was a little bit much maybe um but man like really that's like the only thing I can say against this dungeon. Oh, that's not true. The scales that you have to like throw the, um, the statues on to let the, bring them up. And then when you have to throw the, the main statue across them, I fell off that thing like five times because for some reason you throw the statues less distance than you can jump with them while holding them. So like I tried to throw that statue across from the scale to the side like five times and I thought I was just getting the timing wrong and then I just realized no you just have to jump with it which that makes no sense in the case of like physics jumping with a heavy object versus throwing said heavy object like it just doesn't make any sense but anyway um like that is that is the one thing I can say against this dungeon and the rest yeah, of it was yeah, that's, just and that's real, a nitpick. I yeah, mean. it is a nitpick for sure. And like this, this dungeon was phenomenal. I loved it. It was so uh, good. Yeah, I think I don't think this dungeon is perfect. Um, I think it has flaws, uh, such as like waiting, um, waiting for the water to rise and lower is kind of tedious if you're not solving every problem right away. Um. And like, I kind of wish it had a little bit more spatial reasoning you had to do, right? Like you kind of always know what rooms you need to go to next. Um, mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have like the forest temple sort of stuff for like, oh, you need to kind of figure out where to go. Um, but despite those flaws, I think it's, it's a really fun experience. It feels like uh, if the first few dungeons in this game are like the child dungeons in Ocarina of Time, this is the first one that feels like an adult temple. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I will say that I think I agree with you, Max. I I have a memory of this dungeon being far less linear than it actually is. Um, and it's divi- it's like it's divided into subsections that each have their own specific shtick. And they they take, uh, you know, there's like an internal logic to each one of those in the first area. It's the water rising and lowering and having to sail from spot to spot. And then on the second floor, it's learning how to use the command melody to move the statues around. And like it, it is a big dungeon, but you are right. It definitely does not 
I think it would be pretty hard to get lost in this dungeon. It's a, it's almost a, an early Skyward Sword level of scripting for path, right? Like it it tells you where you're going to go. There, there's really no way to get out of sequence here, which I don't hate. Um, I think you could have added a little complexity and made it better, but I think overall it didn't detract from my experience in any way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, er- yeah. Earlier I said I don't have a particularly high opinion of Wind Waker dungeons, and it's because all of them are like this. Um, they're all generally linear, and they all, they all, even when they take you on like a big winding path, it always loops back around to exactly where you need to be afterwards. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, that was, I'm sure it was because they were specifically trying to aim towards a broader audience than the previous couple Zelda games. Like, they wanted... Uh, people for whom maybe Ocarina of Time was intimidating to be able to play this game. I think that's fair. Um, I will say that, like, I I really enjoyed the um, Dragon Roost dungeon as, like, one of the better first dungeons in, in a Zelda game. But the Forest Haven, I, I didn't, like, love. Like, it was fine. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think... I'm going to reserve my judgment of dungeons overall in this game until I play a couple more. Cause obviously this is only our third. So, um, but if, if what you're saying is true, which I have no doubt that it is, um, I can see that like, I, I don't think if this is the high point, right? Like at least it's a good high point. I but will say a lot of people, a lot of people do uh, cite the earth temple as being one of the better ones as well. So there's definitely some great stuff coming up after this, but I, an interesting thing about this dungeon is that I always remember it being the dungeon where you spend all your time controlling the statues. And that is a big part of the dungeon. But for that reason, I think I had it in my head that uh, I like, I forgot that you get a, a wind waker song that enables you to do that. You get the command melody here um, and, and playing that on the wind waker allows you to control the statues in my head. I was conflating that mechanic with the dominion rod from twilight princess. Mm, that's a good, it's mm. a good, uh, it's a good comparison though. And, well, and they work about the same way, but for that reason, I had it in my head that the dungeon item was something like that. And so I was prepared to go into this dungeon enjoying it but picking up an item that was basically useless in like minute to minute play after this and i completely and then once i got the command melody on the baton i was like oh yeah this is the dungeon where you get the bow okay i'm jazzed now you know yeah any dungeon that gives you the bow automatically gets like a plus five in my opinion i understand what you're saying matt where there's some frustration around like you know getting the statue to go where you want it to go and i know uh, this wasn't a problem for me this time but in past playthroughs of this game i've had frustrating situations where like i accidentally drove the statue off a like a platform or whatever right yeah i didn't have any problem with that it was just the one time when we the first time when i thought it was just going to be escort style mission the whole time but a- after that one I, I didn't have any problem so I, I i liked the mechanic quite a lot yeah uh and, and there is some really fun puzzle solving to be had here um some kind of uh i know it's not like portals puzzles but some portal-esque puzzle solving where there's like an obstacle and you can't get through it, but you've got to figure out if there's a way to like maneuver the statue through it. And I don't know. I I enjoy that. They're very self-contained, very physical kind of movement through space puzzles. Um, Am I I off base with my, 
am I off base with my portal comparison at all, Max? No, no, I, th- I think that's that's perfect. Okay, I hadn't made that connection myself, but I totally see it. Uh, and, and for that reason, it was very fun. And the great thing is that we have all these fun puzzles in this dungeon, but we still have a lot of great combat as well. Um, the enemy density is not super high here, but what we do have is very lethal. I mean, the Beemos, for one thing. You, oh, man, those things will wreck you. Yeah, you alluded to this in your plot recap, Matt, but those Beemos are – they are just freaking like SWAT team Beemos. They've got like <laughs> – They've they've got a beat on you and they are ready to yeah, they, to drill your face they, like they they are um ascendant level comp players in Destiny with their snipers <laughs> man it's nuts uh, I like that um it, it, that was super frustrating for me I did not get a game over in this dungeon so Max I'm I'm playing on hero mode and at this point I've got three bottles and I had two fairies plus the heal the heal all potion right so it was fine. But like, especially that room where it's just one circular platform with a Beemos in the middle, and you have to carry the statue before you have the bow. Yeah, yeah, that one sucks. Like that Beemos. Like if you if you get zapped by that Beemos in the middle of the platform and you drop the statue, then you're just hosed. Because leave leave the room and come back. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. literally. Literally. Because you have to try. You 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 keep trying to pick up that stupid statue, but the Beemos is so quick that it's just like zapping your face off every time you try. It's just it's it's <laughs> brutal. Yeah. And then, of course, once you get the bow and arrow, it's easy to like pop the Beemos's eye, you know, once you know how to do it. But man, before before then, this is probably the most lethal incarnation of the Beemos that I can think of in a Zelda game. Does that Link sound right to the, you, Max? Link to the past Beemos where it's real hard. Oh, I guess that's fair. Yeah. And those are invulnerable. You can't even kill those guys. Yeah. These are the easiest to kill Beemos in the series, I think. Yeah. Once you yeah. can't kill them. <laughs> y- yeah. I think the bombable Beemos in Ocarina of Time are maybe tied for me. They're pretty easy to kill, but um but regardless, they're you know, it's a fun they're they're a, they're a fun obstacle to have to overcome. Matt's throwing stuff around over here. But um no, I, I, I think so. The Beemos are are fun and frustrating to have to fight against. Uh, but of course, we have our first dark nut fight here. And oh. I actually oh man, it's it's so great uh, because really what the dark nuts are in this game is iron knuckles from Ocarina of Time. It's a similar situation. Yeah, they are the most fun enemy to fight in this game, I think. Well, and I and I love the the strategy that you have to employ to beat them and also the subtle ways that the character model implies that, right? Like once you realize that there's like, uh, like lace on the back of their armor. And then once you hit that, their armor comes off and then they're like, they're, they're a little less tanky than they otherwise would be. They're not invulnerable. Um, it's just, it's, it's really, really, really fun. And it's another example of why I think it's so great that this game has the dodge strike mechanic that it does, you know, because you can choose several ways to sort of tackle this encounter. You know, you can you can just wait for your perfect moment and then hit A to do your dodge strike. Or if you want to, you could just do it the old-fashioned way and try to circle around the back of the iron knuckle, just poke it in the back with your sword, and then its armor comes off. Um, I, I like being able to have options in the way that we tackle these harder enemies. And then, of course, one of the other things that we think is so fun about this game is the ability to pick up the the weapons of your fallen opponents which leads to link being able to just hold this giant ass sword like 
Imagine if Link from Ocarina of Time could pick up the Iron Knuckle axe. It's just crazy. Yeah, that would be that would be a lot of fun. I wonder if he would make the noise. He'd be like, hey, (laughs) I'd like to imagine that he would. Yes. Um, And it's so fun, too, because this is like this is such a classic Zelda thing, too, where you meet an enemy for the first time and it's it's one of that enemy by themselves. And it's kind of like, you know, the process of figuring out how to beat it requires some trial and error and you do it and you feel great about it. And then later in the game, you have to fight like 10 of these dudes in a room together. (laughs) Yeah, like 20 minutes later. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Which I have to say, that was that was a lot of fun for me. I I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, Yeah, but that's obviously not a part of this, uh, not a part of the dungeon. But um, but anyway, all that is to say, so I'm thinking now about the progression of this thing. So you get the bow at that point. And after that, this dungeon does come to it does come to a point where so you remember earlier i was saying that it was subdivided into distinct sections right there's the lower floor and then the statue floor i had it in my head that there was another major floor after that yeah in which in which you had to get the boss key but it just kind of ends very abruptly yeah it feels like it's missing kind of a, a denouement like a a breath before the plunge moment where they're kind of building up to a boss but then you're like oh, okay i know the boss is coming like it's sudden, it's more like suddenly oh the boss is coming yeah and it's one of those dungeons where like you get the boss key in the room right before you need to use the boss key you know and and, and so i think if if i do have a criticism at all here which I don't it, it, it's it's again a small one because this is all tons of fun it would be that i think this dungeon it feels like we got two thirds of a dungeon here, you know, and the last third was just kind of just is is missing. It's uh, it's missing an action. Um, but with that being said, it still took me a solid 45 minutes to an hour to clear this thing. So it's tough to complain about it too much because that's a perfectly respectable amount of time in which to try and tackle a dungeon. Uh, and, and everything that we got here was super fun. Of course, once we do get the boss key and we move forward, uh, we get into the boss chamber and we uh, we are we are able to fight what is essentially a mixture between Bongo Bongo and Andros from Star Fox. I thought I thought Star Fox as soon as this guy <laughs> popped up, I was like, hey, it's a Star Fox boss. <laughs> it's got the eyes on the hands. Actually, there's a boss in Mario 64 like that as well. There is? Yeah, yeah, in the pyramid. Nintendo Oh, that's right. Nintendo yeah. Disembodied like like floating hands with weak points in the middle of the palms. There's two of these in Star Fox actually. There's also the one in the where you have to fight through um the ton of ships and it's the one where Slippy can get uh knocked into the planet. Oh, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's it's I guess can we call it a trope <laughs> at this point? <laughs> I uh I love the the boss music for Godan. It's so good. Well, I'm glad I at least now know the boss's name. I Max, I mean, are you with me on this? Like, do you wish that we were displaying the boss's names at the beginning of these encounters? Uh yes. I there's a part of me that wonders if they did display these names in the GameCube version because I feel like they used they displayed the names. And maybe I don't know why else I would know them. Um <laughs> Like I was, well, I was done with strategy guides by the time this game came out. I didn't buy them anymore because they were boring by this point. I know the name 
by memory of exactly one boss in this game, and it's Mulgara. And all the rest of them, I'm just like, nope, got no clue. Like, I've had to Google it. Last week, there was a little bit of a dust-up where I was, I think, in- incorrectly trying to pronounce the name of Ali Demos or whatever it is. But um, but regardless, all that is to say, I think this is a pretty fun boss. Not the most difficult in the world. You definitely do have to be a little agile, as like once you get done with a damage phase, it has like a, a pretty damaging like mortar attack that it <laughs> that launches at you. It's like brutal bombardment, like beam attack is really scary. Like I like, I feel this visceral sense of like, oh, <laughs> every, or, sorry, every time it uh, fires. <laughs> like it really, it really is just like it spends a few seconds trying to carpet bomb Link, and then we move on with the fight, and that's all fun. Um, but uh, of course, the crux of the fight itself is that you just have to damage the weak points on both palms and then both eyes, and then you can drop bombs in its mouth. You do that three times, and the of, because of course you do it three times, um, and then the boss is defeated. Um, I do wish. I think that this would have been a lot more difficult if uh, Z targeting or L targeting or whatever was not an option for it. Like, I think that made it a lot easier just that you could kind of hold the target button and then just let your arrows go where they needed to go. Um, and I don't know if like I, I'm sh- I don't know if there's a way that they could have like suppressed that functionality, you know, so that it's harder Um but that's just a, that's a small nitpick. I will say I love that you don't like destroy this boss at the end of the fight. Um, I appreciate that it just goes back into its eternal slumber. It just like fades back into the wall. It's like, OK, cool. Yeah. Once again, this was not like a malevolent thing. You know, this is a like at the end of the day, this is a an experience that is aiding me as the hero. I thought that was. Yeah. Fun. Godan's a good guy. Good. Godan is one of the good guys. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, so does anyone have anything else they want to say about Tower of the Gods before we move on into the later sections of the Sacred Realms run down here? Uh, we we hear Link talk for maybe the first time in the series. <laughs> come on! <laughs> he speaks in English and he says, come on! But, so Link <laughs> talks, but only to ancient haunted statues. <laughs> Everyone else gets like winks and nudges. <laughs> But the inanimate, the in- looks. yeah. But the inanimate objects, they get shouted at. So there you go. There's that debate settled. Link is not, in fact, mute. He can talk. He's just very bad at it. <laughs> oh man, uh, that's all, right. all. That's nothing else after that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good stuff. So Tower of the Gods, an all-time great. I think definitely a high point of this game so far. Um, and and safe to say that we all really enjoyed it. Hey, listen. Hello, Editing Mike here. Just a quick note that unfortunately we had to uh, postpone finishing the recording of this episode. We uh, we had a few different uh, audio glitches that we were experiencing, some of them hardware related, actually basically all of them hardware related, um, while we were trying to finish up recording this episode. The other night, uh, thankfully, everything is there. We didn't lose any audio, so that's always good news. We hate it when, uh, when that happens, and, and that didn't happen, so... So that's great. Um, however, we are having to pick up everything after the dungeon map and uh, finish out this recording uh, a day and a half after uh, the, the parts that you previously heard. So um, in the event that it sounds just a little bit different than the front half of the episode, uh, there is your answer. Sorry if, uh, you know, sorry if it's a little a little jarring, but hopefully we can stitch this thing together and it's uh, it sounds, uh, you know, sounds totally fine 
as a final product. But with all that said, we're going to get into Bloopy Trails and then finish out the episode and on with the show. All right, so let's go ahead and get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about fascinating things that diverted our attention this week. I'm going to run down my list real quick because, as I said earlier in the episode, there was kind of a lot of stuff that I just kind of, um, you know, squared away while I was exploring the Great Sea, while I was traveling from point to point. Um, as I said before, I, I did visit several great fairies. Um, it was hilarious to me because I started out this uh, this section of game with a 500 rupee cap and it was completely maxed out. And even in the last episode, Matt and I were kind of, you know, bitching about how it was it was the biggest uh, it was the biggest drag whenever you pull a chest up from the ocean floor. It's got 200 rupees and you're already maxed out. Um, and of course, the immediate remedy to that in any Zelda game is that you want to find the giant's wallet. Uh, it turns out that there are two wallet upgrades that you can get in this section of the game, at least two. I, I don't remember if there's more than that, but um, visited two great fairies and got two wallet upgrades. I can now hold 5000. So it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a seafloor chest extravaganza on my end of things from here on out. Go get all the chests got, off the seafloor. Got to get all that money. I want to hit that 5,000 cap uh, as quickly as possible. That'll be my new little challenge for myself. Um, and then in addition to that, I did not uh, I did not play Sploosh Kaboom again, uh, as Matt did on Windfall Island. <laughs> I did, however, visit a, uh, a new game that you can discover, um, and it is the Canon. I, I forget the actual name of this thing, but it's the Canon target shooting mini game on spectacle island and i actually I, I thought it was so funny i was looking at the um i was looking at the map of spectacle island and noticed that uh just like spectacle rock in the legend of zelda it gains its name from the fact that it looks roughly like a pair of glasses in shape uh so yeah that's that's the kind of thing that i never would have known to look for without our playthrough of the legend of zelda so that's fun um but yeah, the cannon shooting mini game I, I thought was a great time. It's much easier, much easier than Sploosh Kaboom, uh, and it's a heart piece that uh, can that completed a new heart container for me. So that was great fun. Um, let's see. Oh, and then the third great fairy I visited upgraded my bomb bag. I can now carry sixty. So I think that that's pretty much everything I got up to this week i think last week I, I actually forgot to mention um that i had completed the side quest with what's his name bato the 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 male um apprentice the male sorting apprentice from dragon roost island i don't know what his name is i haven't done it there's a little side quest you can do there if you go back up to the male sorting room um I think you have to complete you have to complete the mini game with 25 total sorted letters um, and that will kick off a little quest where you mail a letter from I think it's Bato to his mom and then later on his mom will mail a piece of heart back to you. So, oh, OK, well, then I should probably do that quick and easy thing to do. Um, I appreciate that that guy yes. shows up to a job interview without a shirt. <laughs> that was a real power move. He's very confident in his body. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know, I, I definitely it, the, the boldness is appreciated. I, I don't know that I'm ever going to employ that strategy in my own personal life. But at the same time, I can't foresee a situation where I'm participating in a job interview 
um, in person. I was, I was going to say, like, <laughs> like, you theoretically could if you were really good at green screening yourself in some way to, or body paint. If you had body paint on. That'll be that'll be a, a challenge for you, Matt. Next time you apply for a job, we'll see if you can pull that one off. No, I think I'm good. Thanks, though. OK, cool. But yeah, I think that that's all my bloopy trails for the week. I'm probably forgetting one or two small ones. But like I said, I mean, there there are a lot of little things you can kind of get done in this section of the game. And uh um, you know, I think I, I think I covered all the big important ones on my end of things. Uh, how about you, Matt? What was your bloopy trail situation looking like this week? Yeah, so I didn't do too many bloopy trails outside of my massive time sink that happened at the beginning um, of this section. Uh, other than that, I beat Sploosh Kaboom, which is a huge um, achievement for me personally. And I'd like to thank the Academy and uh, God and uh, my girlfriend and Admiral. Uh, what was the Admiral's name? I don't remember. Um, or the guy who runs the stand. Sploosh Kaboom guy. We'll just call him Admiral Sploosh Kaboom guy. Oh, Salvatore. Oh, Salvatore. Thank yeah. you, Max. Well, I'd like to thank Salvatore for this uh, prestigious award. So, um, yeah, that was fun. I also did the pirate cannonball blow up the um, barrels game. So that was fun. I appreciated that the guy who was running that was very similar in both appearance and mannerism to Salvatore. I thought that was, that was fun. I mean, these people, these, these they guys have, have brothers. They've got to be related, right? Yeah, they're brothers, right? Like yeah, you, okay. they have to be. Okay, sure. Cool. Um, I so I did that one. And I mean, I did wonder, I, I, I thought so <laughs> at first, but then I was like, how would that, I mean, you know, it's Zelda, so anything's possible, but, um, you know, what else? What else? What else? There was one other thing I did. <clears throat> yeah, he's able to teleport from spot to spot, and it's pretty pretty incredible. <laughs> he puts on that pirate hat and just uh, says, "Are you mateys uh, away?" And then they're gone. So um, that would be great. Oh, I did get a. I got one of the um, wallet upgrades in the Great Fairy uh, Fountain in Outside Island, and I think that's it. Cool. How about yourself, Max? Oh, boy. Um, So I did a lot of stuff. Uh, We're at the interesting point in The Wind Waker where after this episode and partially during this episode, The Wind Waker becomes like 80% side content, right? Like there's so much, so, so much stuff that is not the main campaign to do in The Wind Waker. Um, So, you know, I I got a couple fairy upgrades. I can now hold 100 bombs, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, I also did the the barrel mini game um there's some quote where the developer uh, a developer says that salvatore is miyamoto's favorite character from the wind waker um and they say that because his name is salvatore they just and he has a mustache they decided to make him italian um (laughs) so they they like salvatore on the wind waker team i guess uh and uh, the main thing I did was I went back to, win- to Windfall Island with a thousand rupees in my wallet, um, really wanting to spend them. And I bought every single thing in the auction house, um, which is actually a fun mini game, uh, sort of for an auction mini game at least. And uh, and then I did a lot of the little side quests in Windfall. Um, Windfall has tons and tons of little like character-driven side quests you can do, and they're they're kind of subtle. It's actually hard to find a lot of them without using like a guide. Um, so I did a few of those, and my favorite was the the one where you earn the color camera um, f- 
from Lorenzo, the the camera shopkeeper guy. Uh, he's a lot of fun. He, he basically sends you out on a paparazzi side quest to take pictures of villagers that he gives you clues about um, in interesting or compromising situations. Um, fun dialogue with that one. So yeah, that was that was probably my favorite Bloopy Trail was that that side quest. And does that feed into the Nintendo Gallery? Yes, as well. You, like, you have to have together? the color camera in order to do the Nintendo Gallery side quest. Okay, cool. And I can't actually remember if we talked about the Nintendo Gallery previous to the the cutoff point um, in the, in the front half of the episode or not. I know we mentioned it, but I think it might have been in that like five minutes of stuff where we were kind of chatting and then we're forced to admit defeat um, and regroup for later. But uh, the Nintendo Gallery that we're referring to is the extra piece of content on the Forest Haven Island that Matt and I mentioned last week. Um, it's possible to use the uh, Deku Baba pods to kind of shoot up even further in the Deku Tree's chamber than you did previously there's a little uh there's a little landing that you can get to and fly down to a nearby island with the deku leaf um and yeah there's a there's a cool area in there called the nintendo gallery that you do need the colored pictograph box to participate in i don't know exactly what happens there yet because i've never done it before and i don't have the pictograph box but uh yeah i'm gonna go gonna go continue checking in on that over the next few weeks and we'll see what we see in the uh, I won't I won't really spoil the details of it, but in the original Wind Waker, that it was a huge side quest, and I think it still is. Um, and it was one of the very rare places in the Zelda series where you could permanently miss stuff and have to do a new game plus in order to actually finish it. Uh, I haven't checked, but I'm guessing that they have plugged that hole in this one, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even if they haven't, that falls squarely under the umbrella of like non-necessary content. I know that it can still be really disappointing um, for a player to miss it, you know. Yeah. But uh, but still, it's 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 not like it's not game required sort of stuff necessarily. It, it is just a fun little fun little Easter egg, um, and we definitely appreciate those whenever they're scattered throughout these games. Um, anything else notable for you, Max? Um, not on the Bloopy Trail front. Okay, cool. Well, I feel like we can pretty safely move on then to part five, which is Z, excuse me, which is Z targeting where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Matt, I'm going to send this one to you first. Oh my goodness. Um, I think... I am going to give it to King of Red Lions this week. And since he's the companion character, it's the only week that I can give it to him. Um, I think that his developing background, and so I guess it's more of a preemptive um, Z-targeting than a real Z-targeting because of this week, but this week prompted it, so I don't know. Um, he just knows so much, like he can speak ancient uh, Hylian, I presume, um, he has so much knowledge of not only uh, the Great Sea, but the surface world and also the lore of Hyrule. And um, he like stands up for us to Jaboon to like say like, hey, you know, maybe he's not the hero of old, but he's, you know, about as good as we're going to get, which I don't know if that's as a uh, <laughs> much of a compliment as 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 I'm making it out to be or not. But, it, you know, he at least went to bat for us a, a little bit. So, um 
all of that. And I think I think he is really growing on me as one of the better companions that we've had in, in the series so far. So um, King of Red Lions for me this week. That's a really good pick, Matt. I, I feel like in the grand scheme of the narrative of this game, um, maybe you're shooting your King of Red Lions load just a little early. I don't know. I, of course, you have no way of knowing that. Well, I, I unfortunately do know who, who he is, and I'm not going to spoil that for anyone who doesn't. But um, that's why I'm, I'm blowing it a little early so that there's opportunity for everybody else to have <laughs> a King of Red Lions love throughout the, the course of the show. Is this your sharing is caring Z-targeting pick? This is my sharing is caring Z-targeting pick, yes. <laughs> you're the best. We appreciate it, Matt. Max, uh, I'm going to send it over to you. What's your, what's your Z-targeting? targeting selection for this week this is very hard and i thought about it a lot because i i honestly think like every npc in the wind waker is fun and interesting and full of personality like brando windfall resident seven has more personality than them than the entire cast of twilight princess um <laughs> it's funny because it's true oh my gosh that was a roast if i've ever heard one wow that was scathing um but i i pick tetra uh i love tetra as a character for a variety of reasons some of which we've seen so far in this playthrough and some of which we haven't um but this section of gameplay um is when like before we met Tetra at the beginning of the game and she was sarcastic, she was scathing, she was kind of funny, she was kind of mean, um, and she was interesting. There were unanswered questions about her. And this time around, a lot of that is still true, um, but we we start to see the the uh, you know, the curtain get pulled back a little bit on like what is her true personality? Like what does she really care about? Like Oh, she's actually like a subtle and good leader of these pirates because she can like manipulate them and she knows them really well. And like, uh, I know she, j- I just really enjoy the view of Tetra we get in this, in this section of, of the game. So nice. yeah, that's my pick. Yeah. Tetra. Tetra definitely has some really good moments this uh, this week, and I actually heavily considered choosing her and decided not to because, uh, again, the rule is that for the main hosts of the show, um, once we have picked one of the main characters in a game for Z-targeting, that character is then ineligible ineligible to be picked again for the rest of the game. And I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to close that Avenue off for myself just yet. Uh, cause I know there's some cool Tetra moments coming later in the game. Um, I'm actually going to go with decidedly not a main character, but still a great one. Uh, my Z targeting pick for this week is going to be Nico, the pirate who, um, <laughs> you know, like bless this guy. I, I appreciate his, I appreciate his support and his willingness to be a good friend to link. Um, you know, he's the lowest man on the ladder and he feels like he's got something to prove, which is understandable. What's not understandable is that, um, in a, in an action that's completely at odds with that fact, he decides to go ahead and just give his entire crew's biggest score of treasure they've had recently to Link <laughs> for for passing a very simple challenge. Um, hey, do you think it was simple? I ha- I hated that challenge. That was sucked. You don't like rope swinging? Oh no, it was terrible. Uh, do okay. you know, Matt? Well, you can pull the button to stop swinging. No. Yeah. Yeah, you hold. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's the right trigger. Can Uh, you slide down? Yes. Oh, see, you know what? How do you slide down it? Because that was the part that was killing me. Once you hold that same button, 
while it's stopped, you can climb up or down ropes. I am furious. <laughs> yeah. Furious. I wasted like easily half an hour on that stupid thing trying to time it right. Ugh. Did we uh <clears throat> did we just change your whole world, Matt? Well, at least that part of it, yes. Okay, cool. Cool. It's a it's a really good pro tip. If you didn't know that, because it is actually not super clearly communicated in game aside from um, HUD button prompts. Now that I think about it. Yeah. If you if you are frustrated while grappling or swinging between ropes, yes, you can stop the swing. You can climb up and down the rope. Makes everything a ton easier. Anyway, uh, Nico, uh, just a real bro. We need some bombs. Uh, the pirates have gone to all this trouble to shake down the bomb shop owner and to steal his entire stock. And this little guy uh, just gives them all to us. Or at least he, when we set when, like when we start the game, he thinks that he's giving them all to us. Tetra makes it uh, makes it very clear via the little dialogue event that happens after we complete this task that uh, they do still have some other bombs squirreled away. So uh, he was definitely not going to give away the whole cash, but it sure seems like he thought he was going to. And uh, yeah, I just don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like top tier pirate behavior. <laughs> I would say that that's probably the reason he's on the bottom of the, the ladder there because you don't give away treasure. Yeah. Some real, just, some like, real swabby move. It's, it is a real swabby move. You're uh, you're never going to become one of the big guys if you uh, if you're just giving away all the all the good explodey treasure. So, yep, Nico the pirate going to be my pick for this week. Uh, let's go ahead and get with all of that being said into our final segment of the Sacred Realms rundown. That is, of course, part six, which is our final thoughts, where we allow Matt to wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way. As he can think to do. <laughs> Good luck. Take it away, Matt. Well, succinctness will not be a hallmark of this section this week. That's for sure. Um, as it was not for the plot recap. Um, we start this section of the game leaving the forest haven and journeying, uh, beginning our journey kind of across the waters of the Great Sea. Um, if you're smart about it, you won't quite do that just yet. Instead, you'll head straight over to uh, Great Fish Isle, where we get to see firsthand and probably most... Um, most terrifyingly of any game, Ganon's um, supernatural powers that he has brought to bear on the world. Um, the isle is destroyed and um, it sets a real tone for the rest of this section of game of uh, urgency and um, stakes. It raises the stakes quite a lot. Um there is a, a lot to do and a lot of great things that happen within this section from uh, ambiance changes because of the perpetual storm and the uh, spooky music to uh, returning to Windfall Island and seeing our favorite pirates at work once again and uh, shaking down some uh, monopoly wielding uh, capitalist pigs, uh, giving them the what's for. Um, we then progress on to, um, rescuing the, uh, wind spirit or the, excuse me, the sea spirit and, um, getting the last pearl, which, uh, brings an interesting light to our relationship with the King of Red Lions, where it's made pretty obvious that, you know, we are the, basically the best that, that they can find right now, but not necessarily the best in the world, um, 
all of that drives us towards more exploration of, of the great sea, which I think has some real promise and um, is going to be a lot of, of fun and a highlight of this game. And then drives us to uh, probably the best dungeon, well, definitely the best dungeon so far, possibly in this game with the trial of the gods. Um, and what was a truly phenomenal dungeon that um, was maybe a little bit abbreviated at the end, but rewarded us with a great new item, uh, a great new melody and um, had some awesome mechanics that were fun and interesting and engaging uh, and topped off with a really phenomenal boss fight that uh, while being a basic direct callback to Star Fox uh, still ended up being a lot of fun and feeling um, new enough to uh, to keep our interest. So uh, all of that then culminates in probably the biggest uh, lore dump of the game so far where we uh, discover the sunken Hyrule castle underneath of the sea and uh, grab the master sword for ourselves, which really solidifies us on our path to uh, defeating or at least challenging Ganon um, with the sacred blade that is so prominent in most Zelda games and uh, really just a phenomenal and chunky and beefy section of game that uh, kept us engaged in many different ways throughout the entire section. So um, looking forward to next week where we continue that. Well done, Matt. As always, you are a maestro at the uh, you are a maestro at the the recapping of plot, whether it be succinct or whether it be long form in the plot recap. <laughs> Thank you. There's a reason that we continue foisting this responsibility on top of your worthy shoulders. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that does, of course, bring us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown for this week. We will be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown, talking about our first steps on the post-Master Sword part of this adventure, which is typically where these games start really ramping up. And uh, according to my memory, uh, continues to be true in this game. So lots to be excited about there max we really appreciate you coming on the episode with us this week um as predicted at the top of this whole thing it was a it was beefy it was a it was an extended affair i think this is going to clock in at just a shade under two and a half hours so um you know that's 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 what we like i think that this was an episode deserving of that length of time and i think we had a really good discussion around it um i think that most people who are recurring listeners of this show already know uh where to find you and where to go check out stuff like high rule interviews and then your own personal social channels but uh just in case uh just in case this hypothetical listener is not aware of those things please let us know uh where everyone can go to follow you and to check out what you're doing yeah um okay so i i'm not active on twitter as much anymore um but i am a professional game designer i work at bungie as an why is that max uh politics um (laughs) and uh fear for my personal data uh (laughs) but uh i and on the side i run hyraleinterviews.com which is a uh, database of i'm trying to collect every interview that's ever been done with anyone who's worked on a zelda game which is a lofty goal i have hundreds tracked in this database and i have a automated bot that posts quotes daily on twitter um which is called hyrule interview because of the character limit uh and you can also find me at my personal game design blog which is namelessquality.com and uh yeah that's me 
Excellent stuff. Definitely go give Max a follow and uh, keep it tuned into Hyrule interviews if you don't already, because that's an excellent resource for any Zelda fan. Max, I am not sure if we're going to have you back on in the back half of this season or not. I think we're we're pretty much full up going into the end of this game, um, but I will definitely let you know. I need to go look at the schedule and see if we've got room for another Max Nichols episode before this season ties up. But regardless of where we land on that, uh, fair to say this will not be the final appearance of Max Nichols on Sacred Realms Pod. That would be a tragedy. Uh, we uh, will be more than happy to have you back for Whatever the next game that we play is, certainly we're going to go back to top downs after this. So um, that is a uh, the question of what that's going to be is one that uh, is intriguing to me. I think that it's kind of completely up in the air which way we're going to go after this. So we'll see. Yeah, I will come back anytime. Thanks for having me. We love it. We love it. You are you are truly one of the MVP guests in the uh, in the canon of Sacred Realms. So, uh, yeah, it's always, always a great time and uh, wish you the best as we go into the holidays and as we uh, start getting wrapped up for the year. And yeah, I hope that you have a nice, relaxing vacation. I, I think you uh, think you've earned it. All right. Well, with all that being said. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show, and that makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on The Wind Waker Chapter 5. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Wind Waker can be played in its original format on the Nintendo GameCube. It can be played in its HD remaster on the Nintendo Wii U, or it can be played on a variety of other devices uh, given your uh, access to the Dolphin emulator, which will run it on any gaming-compatible PC. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss, We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.